Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a modern, full-service ad agency that can work with you on your branding, your logos, your interactive and digital media, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. So check them out online, www.bluefish.com, that's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, all about Chianti Classico, Sangiovese, and hashtag wine is a food group. So hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, halfway decent preserved wine. We'll put that in this one. I always wonder too, like how old wines, or not old wines, but uh, cheap wines will hold up with age. Because you expect a nice bottle of like $100 cab to hold up really well. You expect an old Barolo. Like if you said, hey, here's a 1988 Barolo, I'm going to be like, I'm not even going to think twice. I know it's going to be good. Unless it was stored improperly, you know that old Barolo is going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. But when you go and buy your like a $20 bottle, like, I don't know how that's going to hold up. Like sometimes those are dead in two years, especially the way wines are made nowadays. Wines are made so much to consume today. Sometimes they don't hold up so well after two or three years. Well, think about that one that we did earlier with the uh, the party, like the $10 party wines. The Rodney Strong was from 2008, and it was, we both were kind of like, you know, it definitely fell past its peak, but it was still kind of hanging on. But yeah, if you bought their $100 version of it, it definitely should make it longer. Because you know, if you're making wines for the consumers now, you got to make it fruity. You don't want it to be crazy oaked. You want it to be relatively, you know, more approachable and drinkable now. Uh, obviously some grapes will be way different than others. You know, if you're making a Nebbiolo, that grape's meant to kind of be drank a little longer. Um, Cab's kind of unique just to how you actually make the wine. But I'm wondering, you know, because there's not like the greatest examples of it. I'm intrigued to see what happens with California wines um, over, you know, a good 30, 40, 50 year period because it's not like they have anything from the 10s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, probably for the most part, especially with you know newer giant companies coming in and buying everything out. I mean, most of these really famous wines that people are going after are from the 90s. I think Screaming Eagle wasn't was made in the 90s, and so it's not like you've got something that you can go back deep into your family cellar like you can with uh, some of these Italian wines and go, oh, my great great grandfather made this in the 1800s, and there's some bottles down there still hiding. You don't get that in California. True. I mean, end of the day, also, a lot of the wines that age well are wines high in acid, and a lot of those European wines are high in acid. I mean, you get some of these flabby Chardonnays that are produced in the U.S., they don't quite hold up because they don't have the acid background. Yeah. Where if you, even if you buy a cheap, oh, sorry, not cheap, but <laughs> affo- a- affordable, inexpensive Riesling, that Riesling should still hold up for 20 years because of the acid in the wine, as long as it's you know a, a fairly dry Riesling. Yeah, I mean, once it's got the acid in there, it's fine, as long as it's not so acidic that it's underripe and just bitter at that point. Whereas I, when I think of some of the more iconic Italian wines that age well, that's because they're high in acid. You know, Nebbiolo tends to be fairly, you know, has a nice zip, a nice little grip to it. Sangiovese, the acid in Sangio is always off the charts. That's why it turns people off sometimes. I mean, when I used to do wine tastings, I'd actually sometimes bring a little soprasada or a little salami with me to do the tastings. We'd sit down and be like, try this wine. They'd be like, oh, it's okay. It's like, okay, taste this little piece of soprasada. Now try the wine. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. Because oh, yeah. it, 
they're almost meant to go with food, but that acid also allows the wine to age very, very well. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the nice thing about a lot of Italian wines, um, and obviously like some great German Rieslings, is it's such a food-friendly wine, uh, and it's clearly built upon acid. I mean, that's the one downside I have sometimes to some of these California cabs, and I love California cab, but I, I just drink it kind of by itself um, and not really really pair it with some food that I'm eating. Like, you know, if you're having a big giant steak, that's fine. But sometimes like we'll have those like really easy Italian meals where it's a light sauce, like a little bit of olive oil, you know, and you don't want a big giant wine that's going to blow the food out of the water, but you get like a Sangiovese like these. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, yeah, there we go. Everything. It's like adding salt to a dish. It just makes it better. But these, I mean, they're, they're often both good on their own, but once you put it together, a, a harmony happens just like, you know, like a band when someone's playing, you know, Hey, you're a really good drummer. You're a really good guitarist, but you put those together and you're like, okay, now we got a song. Yeah. That's, a great wine and food pairing right there. That's how, that's what Sangio does with food. And it's kind of cool today. We're actually going to be talking Sangiovese a lot, which is going to be maybe intimidating for both of us a little bit, even little though, bit. even though I've been to Tuscany, you know, probably a dozen times I've walked vineyards. I've had every expression of Sangiovese, major expression of Sangiovese that they make in Tuscany, whether it's Brunello, whether it's Chianti Classico or Chianti or some of the subregions like Chianti Colisanisi, Chianti, you know, Rafina, Chianti. I mean, there's different types. I've had them all, but I'm still intimidated by it. Dude, Italy's crazy, man. That's like, there's more vineyards probably than there is people in that country at this point. And it's just like, oh my God, everywhere you look, it's a new vineyard, a new designated area, a new DOC, a new DOCG, and then a new IGT. And you're just like, holy crap, there is so much to like learn. You could spend your entire life learning Italy and probably still not get most of it down. I, I will say, you know, we, we, last episode, we were talking about wineries shooting themselves in the foot and how wineries and certain countries have ruined their reputation in the United States. And it's sometimes it's hard to get out of that. Chianti kind of went through that. It's a great example of something that they did and accidentally shot themselves in a foot and it, it, it made their wines terrible. And I know exactly what you're bringing up is the wicker basket. <laughs> yeah. And also the fact that, I mean, I always said this, is that the Italians always used to drink the best wines themselves and whatever was left over, they pack it in a box, put it on a boat and ship it to America because yeah. it was just an easy way to get rid of wines and they could serve it and it didn't matter. Whereas they eventually realized the American market is so important to their wines that they had to put out quality wines. And so you started seeing better and more quality coming across, but people were still sending shit. Yeah. And so the Italians and the Italian government has put a lot of laws in place to increase the quality of Sangiovese, of Chianti, you know, whether it's lowering the yields, designated certain areas and just said it's just saying hey this is sangiovese now you have chianti within chianti you have subzones you have the chianti classico within that you have subzones and by them putting these laws in place it has actually put this put this type of wine in the forefront of exports from italy absolutely i i can't tell you how many people come in and they ask me you know i'm looking for uh, something to go with what we're having for dinner. And this will be at the store. It's not even at the winery. And, um, you know, they go right to California cabs. And usually most of the time I'll tell them to aim for a Rosso. Uh, that's that's the big ones I always choose is Rosso de Montalcino. 
But honestly, I think it's mostly because I'm so nervous about still trying to present people with the right Chiantis because I don't want to give them a bad Chianti. But I know I know great examples. And if I have it on the shelf, I could be like, that's the one. That's the one I need you to go for right now. I'm telling you, this is going to go amazing with this dish you're going to make. That'll be fantastic. And the real, like, their first thought is usually, uh, I just, I know Chianti, it's really bad. And I'm like, I know what you're thinking. I know you think that candle and the wicker basket and cheap and expensive $2 crap. And I'm like, it's not. I promise you, this is a much, much better example of something. And people often have a quality Chianti. Maybe they're trying to have it as a cocktail. To me, Chianti is not a cocktail wine. It's not a cocktail wine, yeah. You know, we have plenty of cocktail wines. I could drink Gruner as a cocktail wine. I could drink Napa Cab as a cocktail wine. I can drink a lot of things and not pair it with anything besides a friend and a good conversation, and it goes great. Whereas often Chianti, you need to put it with food. And people will say, oh, I don't like Chianti. It's too bitter. That was, yes. that's the one thing I always got. And it's because it is bitter. It's an acidic wine. It's the, it's the acid that turned them off. It's yeah. not so much the bitterness. It was the acidity. Yeah. And it's people, I think, confuse that from time to time. Yeah. It's the same thing when people talk about dryness in a wine. They're, they mean to refer to tannin, but they say it is dry. Like, oh, I don't like a really dry wine. I just want a little dry wine, but subtle dry wine, but not too dry. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, okay, you're thinking about tannin, but I, I get what you mean. You don't want a Nebbiolo or a Big Cab. You'd prefer like a Pinot Noir or something like that. And it's kind of nice with Sangiovese because there is some tannin structure to it, but you're never going to get like a, oh my God, my mouth is, you know, all the moisture has been ripped out of it and my teeth are now coated in chalk. It's just not that tannic of a wine. It's also difficult because price points are all over the board. All over the place. I know that if I'm going to go buy a Barolo, you're going to start out around $50, you yeah. know, and then it's going to go up in the hundreds, but you, you kind of have a benchmark. You're not going to buy a $3 Barolo. Whereas with Chianti, you can get $5, $8, $10 yeah. Chiantis out there, but you can also get stuff like Castello de Rampola, which is in the hundreds, and they're 100-point yeah. 100 wines. So... What's the difference between those two? And it, like I said, it could be very intimidating. And the different subregions. Also, like I was kind of getting at it a minute ago, is that the government has done some great things and they're not stuck in the past. So many of these European people try and keep the laws the same as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Hundreds where, of years ago in some cases. Yeah, where Chianti just added a new higher-end subregion. They now, yeah. have, they now have the Grand Seleccione which is like the the higher tier of like a Chianti Classico. Which is crazy because doesn't that, I mean, at this point as a consumer, doesn't that just add more confusion to the equation on this? Because now all of a sudden, you know, you have Chianti, you have Chianti Classico, and now you have Grand Selezione, and you're just like, okay, or Selezione. Selezione. I got to make sure. I got to move my hands and speak it like this. You actually held your hand up when you said yeah, it that I time. I did. I think I actually did hold it. That's, that's what does it. It's just saying it by itself doesn't work. You got to hold your hands and shake it. Yep. But it just adds another thing to the equation that you're like, okay, well... I don't know what's the best thing. Now, yeah, obviously, because oh, you also have Reserva, obviously. So now you're saying there's a better Reserva? I mean, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Chianti Superiore? Like, okay, there's a lot out there. And then to get into crazy mix about it, if somebody turns around and says, oh, I love Chianti, and I say, oh, cool, I'll try this one. It's a Vita Noble de Montepulciano. And they're like, uh, I don't like Montepulciano. I'm like, well, it's, no, it's, it's actually Sangiovese. It's not Abruzzo. Oh, well, it doesn't seem like a Chianti. Well, then try Brunello. It's the best example of Sangiovese. Uh, well, that seems too expensive. I don't want to spend on a Chianti, and I don't think it's Sangiovese. I'm like, no, it's all the same grape. Obviously, Chianti gets a unique style of blend that can go into it. Well, but, you know, it's, it's so much to it. I believe that there is a DOC 
in every region of Italy that allows a percentage of Sangiovese to be used into it. Yeah, Sangiovese pretty much dominates everything in Italy from the middle to sort of middle south to middle north area. Like you're not really, I mean, there's even some in France over on uh, Corsica. What's that that island? Corsica? Yeah, I think it's Corsica. Corsica. They, 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 I mean, people around the world are growing Sangiovese, and you're starting to see it more and more. I'll tell you. Seen a lot here. I, I do the tastings for the Arizona wineries every yep. year, and I love the expressions of Sangiovese coming out of Arizona because it has the acid. You know, it's, it could be warm it's still here. still there, yeah. Um, Sangio really uh, adapts well to a lot of limestone in the soil as well. It loves limestone. And... I mean, sometimes you have the cabs here, the Merlots here, and they're kind of a little flat. Thin. They're thin. Whereas when you grow Sangiovese, Montepulciano, some of these Italian grapes, it adds that extra layer of acid that then pairs with the juiciness that's coming out of the Arizona wines. And I think it's got a really nice harmony. I think in the future, you're going to see more and more and more Sangiovese planted here in Arizona. So I've worked with it. What will this be? This will be the third year I've worked with it. This is the first year I haven't been able to get grapes for it from Arizona or California just because I chose not to this year. Um, working with the grape in California, uh, I was getting a little out of the Santa Barbara area and it was coming in hot. The alcohol was up there. The acid fell off kind of right on the end. It wasn't flabby, but it definitely wasn't the Sangiovese we think. Um, so it was a little too much. Now, I still like the way it was. It took to oak a little bit. And the two I've been using out here, the only thing that I, I kind of find unique about it is it seems thinner than most Sangioveses, but our elevation is 5,000 feet. It's 3,000 to 5,000 feet is where it's grown. You know, Chianti's highest point is probably 2,000 feet. So obviously there's a huge difference of elevation that can change what the grape does, but it still comes in. You're right about the one thing, the acid's still there. You know, the, the vine loves drought. Um, limestone is great. I, I, I'm finding more and more working with certain grapes. The thinner the skin on the grape, the more it loves limestone. You know, hmm. Pinot Noir is amazing in limestone and Sangiovese turns out to be really good with it as well. So I think eventually they're going to find those pockets here in Arizona that it's going to work nicely with. And like I said, you know, the two examples that I've worked with so far, I was very happy with with how it was. But the problem is, is you screwed me over by giving me my first drink of Brunello. <laughs> you set the bar <laughs> True. way too high, and now I'm trying to reel it back down to find those cool examples. And I think what we're drinking today, uh, I know you represented one of these guys, and then this one came out of my cellar. The one that you poured, this was the first Chianti you poured for me where he said this is a good example of what Chianti could be at an inexpensive price and a really cool example of it. Yeah, for me, this one's a very modern Chianti Classico. And what I mean by that, it's a little more fruit forward. It's really drinkable to somebody who thought they didn't like Chianti. When someone goes, oh, I don't like the the bitter one. I, I've only had Wicker Basket Chiantis. I, yeah. I only had what my grandmother had. <laughs> I used to steal it from her. This is the wine I used to use to change their minds. I was like, let me show you what can yeah. really, truly be done with Sangiovese. So, I mean, we're, we're going to have two Chianti Classicos today. Um, of course, being Chianti Classico, it's out of Tuscany. Uh, Tuscany has five DOCGs um, within it. Most of them you all have probably heard of. Uh, Chianti, Chianti Classico, Brunello de Montalcino, and Vino Noble de Montepulciano. Uh, the fifth one is probably the least known of them, and that's uh, Carmignano. And I've had very few expressions of that. Is um, that a specific grape, or is it a white grape, or what is it? No, it's Sangiovese. It's Sangiovese? Yeah, okay. it, it's, it falls just like Brunello is Sangiovese. Vino Noble is Sangiovese. Yeah. 
each of these are they do allow a couple percentages of some other stuff to be blended into them. They're, With the exception of Brunello. Brunello. Does yeah. Vino Noble de Montepulciano allow for Cur- blend? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, I think you could use up to fifteen percent of something else. Don't don't quote me on that. Yeah. It might be it might be twenty, but I know they can use a little bit of extra of some other stuff. Usually, it's like. Uh, Canaiolo or Mamolo. Yeah, uh, Mamolo, yeah. There, there, there's certain things that Chianti can lack. So these other grapes that are native to the area. They can use white grapes in Chianti, which I find interesting. Because I know the only time I've really ever seen it is in Rhone, where they add a little Viognier to the Syrah. I haven't, I don't drink a lot of the whites out of Tuscany. I mean, I know like, was there's it? There's a lot there, but. Vernaccia, I think is like their main one. Yeah, Malvasia is um, out there. I imagine Trebbiano probably. Yeah, but Trebbiano is a weird one. We'll do some some discussions about Trebbiano because Trebbiano, there's like thirty or forty expressions of Trebbiano, <laughs> and most of them are not related. That's weird. So like Trebbiano da Suave is different than Trebbiano d'Abruzzo, which is different than Trebbiano, which is different than I mean, it's welcome to the Italian wine world. I was gonna say it sounds like Spain where they're like Tinto this, Tinto that, and it's in the end it's all Tempranillo. <laughs> I mean, you know, as, as as Italy keeps putting these laws into place and strengthening you know, are kind of solidifying what they can do, the wines are getting better and better and better every single year. Do you think that is a product of the regulations that they're putting on people or it's a product of money being dumped into Tuscany for better, uh, for more modernization? Both. Or maybe both? Because the people that are still doing rustic expressions of Sangiovese are putting out great products. But as you know, when your yields are lower, when the government's regulating your yields, you're going to get a better product. And Sangiovese is a very high-yielding grape. It's, yeah. it's very resistant to drought, and it's very high-yielding. So if you're a poor man in, in Tuscany and you can plant your highest-yielding grape, go with Sangiovese and get tons of it so you could drink tons of it year-round with your family. Back in the day, they weren't trying to make money exporting it to America. This whole exporting to America is fairly new in the history of the Italian winemaking world. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm, so, I'm amazed it ever made it out of it, Italy, and they just didn't drink it all at that point. Plus, I imagine uh, with a lot of like immigrants coming over over the years, especially being from Italy, they've always wanted to stay close to home. And the easiest thing to transport would be your cheap bulk wine, which in this case would be Sangiovese. Yeah, you can make tons of it. I mean, you, yeah. you, you could plant a bunch of vines right next to each other and get twice the yield that you're going to get out of most other grapes. So you get twice the amount of wine. I mean, yeah. if I could plant one vine and get twice the amount of wine out of it than somebody else, sounds good to me. Yeah, right. That's a good way to do it. You know, I mean, this region, for those of you who are not familiar with Tuscany, it's kind of like around Siena, around Florence or Firenze. Pisa uh, is right in that general area. It's basically middle Italy. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically the easiest way to put it. And uh, I think the only side of it that touches the water is on the Mediterranean side. So the west side of it, not that it's not all Mediterranean, but it's not that. Is that Baltic? No, it's the Adriatic. I think that sea in between them and Croatia. Sure. Sure. All right, we'll go with that. <laughs> anyway. I'm having enough trouble picking out Pisa and Abruzzo on a map sometimes. Good point, yeah. But uh, yeah, man, Tuscany is just... It's, with the amount of wines and wine regions and grape varietals in that area, it could be so confusing to a lot of consumers who... If, if we took an average consumer and flew there, John Moff said, all right, we're going to have some wine. They'd be like, okay, well, I know Chianti. Well, wow, you have a million options at that point to go to. I mean, the most most people here will say, "Oh, I like Napa Valley." Well, we've got Cabernet and so on. Well, they don't. They don't. Most consumers don't care where in Napa Valley. They don't care about Rutherford or Yumpville or Oakville, Howell, any of those things. They just go, "Oh, I just want Napa Valley Cab." But I imagine out there, the town 
on the other side of the mountain, which is maybe a mile away, will refuse to drink their version of Chianti because they won't drink their Chianti and they've all hated each other for 10 years since they've been warring forever and a day. Well, you're, you're seeing the Chianti producers using more and more of their sub-regions actually on the bottles. So before they just said Chianti. Now you'll actually see Chianti Colisinisi. Colisinisi is a sub-region within Chianti or you know Chianti Classico or Chianti Rafina. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are those are sub-regions. Yeah. And, and so they're proud of their sub-regions. I consider Colisinisi a high-quality sub-region. When I see a Chianti Colisinisi, I will gravitate towards that than just a regular Chianti. So because the Rubiola, what is this? Castel- Hold on. I, saw, I saw the region on this This one. is from Gaiole and Chianti. Okay, so... And Castellina. Castellina is the region? Yep. Yeah. And, okay. and Gaiole is the producer, and it's also very close to the name of the town that's close to it. So why don't you tell them what we're drinking? We're drinking Chianti. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I thanks, already did buddy. that. <laughs> cool. I got coffee here, too. Uh, no, well, go ahead and say the labels. Okay, so it's fun because we're actually trying an affordable bottle that is roughly 16 years old. We're drinking a Rafino Reserva Ducale Chianti Classico. Yeah. And Rufina is the most predominant one you'll see at most stores, it's I would say. Probably one of the most, the biggest houses in the neighborhood. When, when, when Jonathan showed up with this bottle and I was kind of describing, I'm like, you know, they're kind of like the Mandavi of this area. You know, they're a powerful family, they own a lot of land. They're one of the most recognizable labels. If you open up a book on yeah, just Chianti, you're probably going to see a Rufino label in there. Um, the nose to me on this, to be honest, so we poured these here just as we fired up the podcast. And the very first thought I thought of when I smelled this, and I know I'd love throwing flavor profiles at you, it smells like a head shop to me. Head shop? It smells, <laughs> it smells like hippie. Okay, that's funny you said that because I, I smelled the bottle. I was like, that's a really unique smell. I like or, you're saying or, hippie. Or incense. You know when you get that burned incense? That's yeah. they, They've burned a thousand flavors of incense inside of a head shop that's just permanently it's in a that perma shop. Kind of like Nag Champa crossed with candle crossed with... But not with fresh burning incense. Like it's all gone. Lingering. Like that lingering yeah, incense Yeah, when smell. you walk into a... We mean by head shop, like one, one of those uh, pipe shops or those hippie yeah. shops. There's always this one smell. And I'm not... It's not the patchouli smell, but there's like this <laughs> incense smell. And as soon as I smelled that, I was like, oh my God, that smells like old incense it's funny you say that <laughs> i'm like because I'm, I'm sitting here smelling it and i'm like it's it smells old to me there's a dankiness to it that uh i'm not quite getting like there's not the fruits kind of falling off and I, I didn't know what to expect with this i just brought this with me i mean it's 2002 um i'd imagine the reserva that they're on right now is 2016 because it's gotta be 24 months so it'll be coming into the states well i guess actually it won't be coming into the states since the well, I'll get into a trade war thing and labels a little later on just because they're having problems with labels from the TTB. So, yeah, so they're probably on at least 16 right now. On a side note, maybe you would know this, is right now in the United States, we're under a government shutdown. And does that affect the TTB? Oh, yeah. It's about to be a massive nightmare. I mean, we're talking a huge nightmare. And, and I do want to get to that because this will take a good chunk of our conversation. And I want to, I, I could kind of touch on it now. and We'll kind of talk about it a little bit. But you cannot submit a label, or excuse me, you cannot put your wine out without submitting a label to the TTB um, that doesn't get basically, they're called colas, uh, and the TTB has to approve it for you to put it out. The problem that kills the wine industry in this is that means if you have a new vintage, you have to submit another label, 2017, 2018. Even if you have the same exact design and same everything, you have to submit this label, and they immediately approve it. You get it within like five days, basically. 
We kind of avoided that because we don't have vintages on ours. We leave non-vintage labels um, and the same alcohol thing. That's the other thing that can mess with you. If your alcohol changes, you have to resubmit your label. Uh, if you change certain things, you got to resubmit your label. Now that the government shut down, the TTB is closed. Nobody right now can release any wine in the U.S. from 2018. There is none coming out. And the problem with that is, is anybody who wants to put their Saw Blanc out right now, it's, it's now, you know, end of January, they're going to start getting ready for their rosé and some of their white wines to come out. They can't. They can put it in a bottle, but they cannot sell it till they get a submitted label. So now it's just going to sit there. And now we're going to start drifting into rosé season. They can't do it. Importer, importers are going to have it worse because they have to go through a whole host of things to have it imported in, tested, labels approved, and then put onto the shelves. So they can't send their stuff over here at all. And then here's the biggest problem with this is, and this is going to be a big one. Let's say they were to open up today. Uh, what are we at? January 21st or something like that. Let's, they said, fine, we're ready to open. Well, last month, it would have been fine. It would have taken you five days. The backlog is up to like 120,000 labels. It's going to take about 35 days for those labels to be approved. That's a whole month from now. That means no 2018 Vintage Wine is at minimum coming out till the end of February at best. And we don't know how long this government shutdown is going to go. So if, you're a, if you don't have a backlog of 2016 and 17 wines, and 2017 is coming out, and that's scary because people are freaking out about smoke taint. So you've got this hit of white wines and rosés that aren't going to be able to be submitted and coming out unless you have a non-vintage, already approved label that you're not changing any year on or anything. Otherwise, these guys are all shit out That's of That's crazy because this, the release for most of these wines in Europe, or I know Italian wines, the release coincides with the, their big event called Vin Italy. Yeah. And so you're looking at something around uh, March, April, or May is the release of all the new vintages. So that's when you start seeing the new Brunellos hitting. That's yep. when you start seeing the new Barolos being released. That's when you Well, yeah, I mean, Chianti can't legally be released till March 1st. So that that mark is going to hit in a couple days for us here if you've got that 35-day stretch. So it's it's going to be... It's going to be weird. I mean, they're already talking about importers and distribution companies have already lost about $3 billion. We're already at $3 billion they've already estimated in loss because of what they cannot bring in and what they cannot sell. I mean, that's the whole amount of money they're fighting over right now, basically. Well, not to mention, you know, in December, I've worked with importers. You make such a hard push in December and January to move through your product because you're getting ready for that new vintage to land. Because yeah. when the new vintage gets released, you don't want to be sitting on the old vintage. I mean, as a consumer, that's great. But as a salesman, you have an, every 12 months, you have a new vintage to sell. Yeah. So once you hit 10 months, it's time to move it out. Yeah, and I can't even imagine how bad it is for brewers and distilleries that are brand new that are like, all right, we got our feet up under us. We're ready to rock and roll. Let's get these done and government shut down. And if you're a brewery, you're definitely having a huge problem because if you're a new brewery, now you can't even put your cans out there. You can't do anything until this opens back up and you get your label and everything approved. That's crazy. I hadn't... I hadn't actually thought about how it would affect imports until just now, just as yeah. we were talking about it's this. A, it's, a, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm really intrigued to see how the chips are going to fall on this one, especially if they linger this out. If, let's just pretend for one second this lingers and it goes two, three months before they figure anything out. There's a real world chance you won't see any rosé come out till summertime, till like actually middle of summertime. Uh, white wines will sit on the shelves and they'll have to be quickly pushed out as fast as possible. And 
I don't know. I, I just, I don't know how this is going to go. I think somebody is going to fill in some gaps. We'll see. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't, I, I think we're going to see a weird swing of wines and trends over the summertime when a lot of stuff gets thrown out to market all simultaneously. So who knows? Crazy. It's crazy, man. It's it's a it's a weird thing. And we, like I said, we I can't submit my club right now. I was about to release my spring club, or well, not my spring club, but our first quarter sh- shipment, and I can't do it because I have labels that I need to submit. So I've already missed our club shipment, and of course, people are calling me wondering where's our club stuff. There's nothing I could do. I don't have a label to give you, and you know, I, there's nothing I could do about it. And any of our vintage wine, there's nothing we could do about that either. So it's. It's bad. It sucks. <laughs> it's amazing. No, but people see a government shutdown, they don't really realize all the amount of things that get affected. But, well, there's a great example of it right there. Yeah. Well, so, so in the meantime, we get to drink all of our old fun stuff like this ridiculously old Chianti and this. What is Is that 2011? Yeah. The Rubiolo. Which, I tell people about the Rubiolo. Which now. is still. This has some age on it. You know, I'm sure current vintage of Rubiolo is probably hitting the market spread around 15 right now. 15, I'm going to guess. So this is still has about four years of age. When you, So are you smelling the Rubiolo? Yeah. All I'm right. trying to... Candied cherries. Hold on. Wait, 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 sweet cherries. Wait, wait, hold on. Sweet strawberry. Uh, stop, stop naming things for me. I'm trying to figure this out on my own. <laughs> no, you can keep talking, though. <laughs> Sometimes it helps kind of... Jar your memory. But, but the problem was, it, I wasn't looking for a sweet candied smell at the time. There was a kitchen aroma that I was getting, a like a basted herby chicken. Like, right, like when they, like, so my grandma used to coat the chicken in a bunch of oils, run a bunch of stuff on it. It was that smell right before she threw it into the oven. Sage? And, uh, yeah, like sage, thyme, like, like green, like a, not a green note in green bell pepper, but herbs, uh, like dried herbs that you would throw on something to cook at. I'm also getting, but yet the, there is fruit there. I could definitely smell fruit on it. I'm getting the sage. I'm also getting a little alfalfa, which is weird to say. But I had a rabbit growing up. Alfalfa. I, you know that smell of rabbit food, rabbit pellets. Oh, uh, vaguely. Uh, it's been too long. My cousin had a rabbit growing up on a farm. You know, it's just I, those are the little things in my memory. Or yeah, my childhood. you get the barnyard stuff and whatnot. This has a little barnyardy on the first note. Definitely is a little barnyardy, little pet zooey. Now that w- that's going to blow off really, really fast. I mean, it's already. 50% of it's already yeah. gone. I mean, I definitely get cherry on this. So, but for me, it's not just a bright cherry. Um, the one knows that this is just thrown off to me. And as soon as I smell it, it reminds me of my childhood. It reminds me of those candies that my grandmother had that were in the strawberry wrapper. Oh, yeah. And it looked like a little kind of like a strawberry. It was all silver in the wrapper. And then when you bite into it, it's actually kind of gummy in the middle or a little juicy in the middle. Uh, these little strawberry candies that every grandmother, I think, had in a oh, little yeah. jar. That, do, do you see them at the dentist and doctor's office? Yes. All those things? Yeah. That's the nose that this threw off to me right away. It's funny. I used to see those everywhere, but I've never actually seen them for sale anywhere. I think you get it with your AARP membership. <laughs> <laughs> Once you hit a certain age, I think they just send you... They just show up in the mail one day. You, you, you get the old lady catalog. You know, There's certain things like... Old people have, like, old people always have a box of there's, tissues in the back window. Yeah, there's a, it's a pasta smell. It's almost like a marinara. It, it, it's a marinara sauce that my grandma would make. Um, so tom- it might be a stewy tomato, but not quite tomato. Like, the like already pureed tomato that was being cooked where you throw in basil and thyme and stuff. Like, that's what it is. Like, it reminds me a little bit of my grandma's red sauce a little bit. So, you know, there is Without a... the pasty, like... 
You're talking it's, with your hand again. I'm, I'm talking with my hand. It's Italian wine. <laughs> if I'm not talking with my hand, I'm not doing this right. <laughs> you, you have to give me a three-foot vicinity to the left. Or I need a five-foot radius circle around me when I'm drinking Italian wine, or you're probably going to get hit. You can't, you can't talk with your hands on a podcast, though. That's a good point. <laughs> he's over here making hand signals as he's talking. I, like... I want people to know my frustration, but they won't see it. <laughs> so th- this winery, Gaiole, so when it comes to Italian wineries in Tuscany or wineries in Tuscany in general, they're all over the board. Some of them are trapped in the 1800s. Some of them are trapped in the 80s. And other ones are already looking to the future, and they're already in 2020. This is a winery to me that's already in 2020. Mm. He said, you know what? I have the best, some of the best grapes you can grow in Tuscany. Why would you take this beautiful engine and put it inside of an old car? (laughs) <laughs> He's like, I would rather build, I'd rather have a Ferrari and be able to put this engine inside of a Ferrari just so, you know, to see what it could truly do. So what he did was he bought the most top of the line equipment you can buy. His uh, filtering system does not pass things through a centrifuge or a pump. It like slowly drips in this uh, canister through like microfiber hairs. It's all done through gravity. and It's a slow process, but it doesn't beat the wine up. It doesn't make the wine astringent from going through a pumping system or going through. This was something I learned from Paul Maz. Paul Maz went gravity flow. That's a crazy setup. Yeah, because he, you know this is a, a a rich doctor. He's actually the guy who invented the heart stint. So he went to his doctor buddies and his scientist buddies and say, "Hey, why is wine bitter or astringent?" And they figured out that every time you pass it through a pumping system, it breaks the wine down on a molecular level. So by the time it gets from the winery to your glass. It's been beaten up four or five times, and so the wine will sometimes have a bitter or astringent taste. Whereas if you go naturally gravity-fed from beginning to end, like every time you want to move it from one barrel to another barrel, you have to go down a flight of stairs using gravity. Interesting. So some of these wineries are two or three or four stories into the ground because that's how every time you want to go to a different barrel, you just keep going down. That's crazy because you'd have to have a very, you'd have to have a system. At least I imagine where you have like a nitrogen and CO2 setup that injected or like most likely nitrogen or argon, because if it's going that slow, maybe the release of oxygen in there is helping. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, But that's weird because I guess anywhere between, I don't know when the pump was invented, like the electrical pump, pretty much everybody would have had to use some type of gravity system Mm -hmm. for filtering their wines out. Or in most cases, at least with red wine, way, way, way back in the day, there's not really find or filtered in any way. And you just pull it out of the barrels and bottle it up. You know, but you're right, the electric pump is a more recent thing, and it's interesting to see that that would have an effect on the wine just by it running through a pump and breaking it up. But it makes sense. And then their barrel room has, it's not just, we were talking about this in one of the last episodes, the barrel room, it's not just barrels that are stacked up on racks. The barrels are actually on wheels. So when you want to mix up your wine and you want to stir up the lees inside of it, you could just grab the barrel and turn it like you're driving a bus. <laughs> and so you just give your wine, the, the barrel, the shaky shake and stirs up the lees because by not popping that bung off, you're not allowing air to get into your wine, which is oxidizing your wine. Yeah. So you could spend a year mixing your lees up without ever exposing your wine to air or oxygen. You better hope that bung is real tight in that, uh, in that hole. Yeah, right. All right. 
Well, all right. Sorry. Jonathan. Nothing. Quit acting like a 13 year old boy. My, my phrasing sometimes <laughs> makes myself laugh, and I don't realize it till it comes out of my mouth. I'm like, ah, crap. But it's one of the reasons I used to use this to showcase what can be done with Chianti Classico because it is such a modern expression of it. It's bright, it's flavorful, it's not astringent. I mean, there's, there's great flavors going on in this. And for a novice or somebody who hasn't had a lot of Chiantis in their life, this is that gateway drug into Chianti to me. It's it's cool to me because I've got obviously I've got my Rufino, the old one on my left and the old one right, and the, it's one of the few times, and I really mean this by the, one of the few times where the wine actually smells like something I would eat out of an Italian kitchen. Like I, I'm dead serious when I say like the the Rubiolo, this this newer one has this fresh Italian kitchen smell to it. Like it would remind me of something that would get thrown on. Like if you could condense this into some type of um, Something you'd put on like a pizza or your chicken, like a uh, like a seasoning, like turn this wine into a seasoning. It'd be exactly something you'd have in Italy. And the one on the left, the Rufino, it definitely has that old nose characteristic. Definitely a little bit oxidized, but it still has an Italian. See the the Rufino to me, and this is one thing about Italian wines. And it's one day I'll find the smell, and I'll actually have a name for the smell. There's a distinct smell to me that Italian wines give off, and I think the reason is is most of the time there's a huge lack of oak influence on it. You know, especially as going to really old barrels, and I don't know if these guys use brand new barrels or not, but it allows for better aromas to come out sometime, like more floral aromas. And Italian wines always have this very unique smell, and it's it's a flower of some type. I've smelled it before, and the Rufino gives it off, and it's still it's 16 years old at this point, and it just reminds me of old Italian food. Um, like I feel like if I walked into a mob restaurant that had prosciutto hanging from the walls and there was like the old grandma in the back making a pizza, the Rufino would be what that kitchen smelled like. It's also, like- you know, unclean Italian guys running around that are, you know, mob style people. There's that funk in there as well. <laughs> it's fun. So this Rufino has way more acid in it to me than the Rubiolo has. And I don't know if there's a little creaminess to the Rubiolo, but when I tried this Rufino, I swished it all around, up, down, left, right, worked it out, swallowed it, and it felt like there were like a million pinpricks on my gums. Like literally, it was like I just it definitely got, makes my mouth broader a lot. Yeah, like I literally just went to the dentist. Like I have like Novocaine in my mouth um, because of all the little pinpricks because the acid <laughs> is still z- so zippy in this. But the it's kind of hitting its peak. This wine to me, it has that little slight. 15 or 20% funk of the wines like that come out of the back room. The, the, the wine that's kind of hitting its oxidation. It's kind of hitting its, the end of its life. Yeah. Um, the acid is still there, but it's, it's on its last legs in a way. Yeah. The Rufino definitely feels like it's definitely like when we always use the roller coaster analogy, we're already heading down the slope while the tail end of it's coming back. The Rubiolo has a, a solid finish. Um, it still lingers a little bit. I can still taste it a couple seconds after I drink it. The Rufino has a good flavor profile, but then it falls off at the end. That's clearly just due to aging at this point. What do you think? You got a smile on your mouth. I love it. I think it's fucking delicious. Yeah. It is. I know I was just saying it's on its last leg, but it's not in a bad way. Like this, this right now, like we always talk about the mountain, the hill. Yeah. This is at its peak right now. If anything, it's a little over its peak, but it hasn't started going downhill. Yeah. It's like the boxer that just retired. He could probably still throw a fight if you gave him like a chance at it, but now it's time to like this call the, it a day. This is the Floyd Mayweather. Your, yeah, begin your announcing career and, you know, get used to that. But you, you don't throw any more punches anymore. <laughs> he, it's, 
I could actually drink a few bottles of this and be not super bad. happy. Yeah. I was really nervous about it going into it because I was like, yeah, you know, we expected the oldness of it, but we also, you knew this is a not, I guess, mass market is not the right term, but it's a much higher production wine. So we don't exactly know. It's not like they're out in the single vineyard concentrating on that one vineyard. The amount of wine that Rafino puts across its bottling line in one hour is probably more than Gaule makes an entire season. Probably, yeah. Just, they probably have three or four tanks bigger than the entire production of Gaule. Yeah, I mean, you got a handful of people that work at Gaule. There's, I mean, it's a small, small winery. I, I mean, love that. I love small wineries. But it's really cool, you know. I mean, we gotta, we gotta, especially with the amount of old wines I've had from all these collections I bought that, like, we at least got to try some really old examples of things while we could try newer examples of things. And you could get both of these on the shelves for, what, 20 bucks? Uh, the, the, Ish? The Rubiolos is going to be about 25 yeah. And so this being the Reserva... Oh, I'm going to butcher that. Uh, the Rufino Reserva Ducale. Ducale. Duchale. Hold on. Let me get my hand it. Duchale Chianti Classico. Yeah, I'm going with that. But uh, it's good, man. It's, it's, it's there. It's... Exactly what I would have expected out of a wine 16 years old. I was thinking that being a more mass-produced wine, especially coming from something early 2000s, it might not have held up. And it really did. I was actually, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm actually curious to see how this is going to change over the next hour as we're kind of talking. Yeah. Um, whereas, honestly, the Rubiola right out of the gate. Just banging. Well, I mean, even in the color, you can kind of see it. You know, you hold the Rufino down a little bit, and you can see the little brown around the edges. It's turning a little more brickish. And that Rubiolo still has a little bit of garnet, and almost there's a slightest, super slightest, like, it's not purple, but there's like a purple-ish color. But it, it's, it's not It's not like you added like a Petit Verdot or Cafranc Purple. It's 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 got color to it. Versus it's, the Rufino looks old. It's pristine looking though. When you see the the Gaiole, there's no cloudiness to it. No, it's it's a really beautiful looking wine in a glass. It's got a beautiful color. Whereas the Rufino definitely has taken on more brick characteristics. Brick yeah. Characteristics, almost a little brownie um, around it. I mean, really dark brick, like more brownstone, like you would see like in Boston. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely. You would definitely be able to look at it and be like, oh, that's definitely on the older end of the spectrum versus the Gaiole is definitely kind of right in the middle a little bit. The nice thing is, is you can always tell, too, for Sangiovese, it's not like it's pitch black or, excuse me, like dark red looking through it. You can't see it. Like, there's still, I could see clear through the middle of it at this point. So one of the identifying factors of Chianti Classico is the rooster on the label. Yeah, talk about the... The rooster on the label. The the rooster's pretty iconic. People know it. I tell people that when you're looking to buy a Chianti Classico, just look for the little black rooster. You know, when you see it, it's 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 a sign of a good wine. I've not had can, a black rooster Chianti Classico that was bad. It doesn't. It's not a sign of quality, but it's a sign of where it comes from and the heritage of the wine. And you can only get the black rooster on it's Chianti like, Classico. Only on Chianti Classicos, and I don't believe every town in Chianti Classico uses it, um, but it is the sign of Chianti Classico. When you go to the Chianti Classico area at Venitaly, it's they have the giant black rooster up there up on the <laughs> billboard, and when you buy a shirt that's a Chianti Classico shirt, it always has a little black cock on it. Um, that is the sign of it. Um, so there's a have heard five or six different legends as far as where they came up with this. I tell one story. I don't know how true it is, but it's a great story to tell. 
Um, but the reason why they use the little black rooster on the label, and this goes back to the you know the time of knights and horses and you know medieval times, and this region and this town wanted to expand its territory, and the town next to it wanted to expand its territory, and <laughs> they wanted to draw a boundary line, and they didn't know exactly where to draw the boundary line. So the nobles came up with an idea. They said, okay, at sunup, your best knight hops on your fastest horse and rides directly at my castle, and I will have my best knight hop on my best horse at sunup and ride directly at your castle, and where they meet, they'll high-five and they'll draw the boundary line there. (laughs) Well, Chianti Classico, in this town, they had this little angry black rooster that used to actually crow before sunup, and everybody hated this black rooster (laughs) because it would wake people up before the sun. You know, rooster's supposed to crow at sunup. But this guy was a, an hour early every day, and no one understood why. Well, they put that little black rooster in the knight's room, so he left an hour earlier because of the black rooster, thus expanding their region bigger than the, the neighbor. And as a tribute, they always put the little black rooster on the bottle. So the black rooster was being a dick, and now he's being a symbol? It's Yeah, that's kind of funny, right? <laughs> and that's the symbol of the area. That's the symbol of the region. Like, I love that everybody listening to this is losing their mind over the jokes that are being run right now, all the puns and everything. <laughs> it, you know, every single town in Italy has some 500-year-old legend that they have to use on their bottle. If you go to the town square, there's always some legend, whether it's a, a, je- a court jester, whether it's the little black rooster. Shooting cannons at the sky. Shooting cannons at the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love it, man. That's if that's the real story for that thing. That's one of the best things I I've heard for like a story of how a boundary got drawn. Because you hear a lot of really weird boundary stories. Like Arizona, if you were to look at a map, has a weird boundary story. And the weird boundary story was they were in Texas and they were supposed to draw a straight line across, and then wherever they ended up, that's how it was. But all of a sudden, Arizona has this weird right hand like kind of uptick at the base of it and it's because supposedly the uh, surveyors got really drunk lost their directional and took that weird angle and then figured out they were wrong right around yuma and then went back towards the coast and that's why we have the weird border we have i don't know if there's any truth in that at all that's just what i heard but you know what i'm gonna stick with that and if that's what this little black cock has to do with that that's a great story. <laughs> they, they had that show on TV a few years ago. It was like How the States Were Drawn or something. Yeah, How, uh, how the States Were Made. Yeah, 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 and that's actually a really interesting show. Like They were talking about how the little boundaries and how... like Some, some little this, nook here and little crack here. And, yeah. Because if I drew them, every state would be square. Be nice and easy. Yeah. <laughs> and none of our states... Well, maybe one is square. Wyoming. Yeah, there's... And Montana. <laughs> and North Dakota and South Dakota. <laughs> Not too many. But even still, I think they have their little nooks and their little... Yeah. Well, the weird one is always, I think it's Georgia has that little underhang, and I remember listening to it, and it was because some preacher and some like other group of town people like really hated the people across the river. At the time, there was a river there, and so they just refused to join, so they wanted to be part of Georgia. Georgia didn't want them, so they fought over there, and eventually they were actually part of like a different state, and eventually somebody absorbed them because it was like a religious thing. And you're like, that is, it's weird that there's this little, like literally a square mile or two of just underhang. There's a place in Minnesota for the longest time that was technically Canadian because the river kept changing over the years. It would just ebb and flow. And so one year you're Canadian, one year an American. This was in the 1800s. So nowadays it's like, okay, here's the line. If you're here, you're fine. Isn't there a part of like Michigan that's actually like across the lake that's not attached to the rest of Michigan? I'm, uh, there is one in Washington. The only There's a place in Washington where you're actually an American citizen, but the only way for you to get back into America is to drive through Canada and around. It's just this weird little mile-long tip of Washington. It's, it's not 
it doesn't touch Washington. It's actually part of Canada. But because that straight line comes across, it just cuts across this little itty bitty spot. <laughs> we talk about how confusing the wine laws over are over there. I mean, imagine trying to like learn the states and how those things were formed. Oh, here. that's a good point. Yeah, our states are so weird, man. And it's funny because you, you notice the farther west you go, the more straight and narrow things become. True. Well, that's that way with the, the roads. You know, it's, it's very different trying to drive around Arizona versus trying to drive around Boston. True. We're a straight up grid. I There's mean, only one street that goes diagonally in all of Phoenix. I mean, have you been to Boston yet? Not yet. We're going, obviously, for summertime yeah, now. Yeah, we are. Shout out to Fish Tour getting released. <laughs> it is the most screwed up city I've ever seen. That's so, so we're not going to rent a car is what you're saying. <laughs> basically, it was, I think the streets were drawn by like, a drunk guy on a donkey while like eating peyote <laughs> like this it's even gps has no idea what the hell it's doing in boston just gives you a question mark <laughs> no it is so confusing like it's bad it's really bad there <laughs> i loved driving through italy uh we went from uh just south of pisa uh oh naples we were in naples we drove up and went to pisa went through rome and we ended up in, where was it? It was just off the coast. Um, I think it's Genoa, maybe? That's northwest area? Yes, it is. Yes. So we were there. Big port town. Those roads suck ass when you get into the cities because they were, they're old cobblestone. They're tiny. You know, I get why you would never have an SUV out there, man. You could be in a mini and get stuck into certain alleys. You're kind of gambling. Like, Can I get through that alley? Can I not get through that alley? And it's just bumpy and jagged. And you're like, holy crap, what a weird way of driving around there. And it's the same thing. It's nothing really straight. Everything's a circle or a weird nook and left turn here, right turn there. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Genova is a very unique city. It's a lot of, it's a port town. So you get a lot of uh, sailors that have settled there over the years. You get a lot of gypsies. Um, there's a really bad gypsies everywhere in Italy. <laughs> there's a really bad crime rate in yeah. Genova. Um, it's one of those places where I've been in Florence when they said, you know, basically take your wallet out of your back pocket and put it in your front pocket and keep your hand in your pocket because the little gypsy kids are going to steal your wallet. But in Genova, they're like, don't go anywhere without a partner kind of thing. Just yeah. because it's it's a port town. It's that way in most port towns around you know, the Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, when I was living in Nice for a little bit, it was the same thing. They were like, okay, the first two blocks are great. You know, it's beautiful. You got the beach, all this rocky square, blah, blah, blah. But they were like, do not go beyond this mall. It is not a good area to go past here. And you forget sometimes, you know, when you visit these beautiful cities and you're like, this is amazing. It's beautiful beer. You forget it's a major city and there's crime everywhere. Like it just, it is just the way it is. One of the most, one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my entire life was a church in Geneva that had a bomb that was dropped on the church during World War II where the bomb actually went through the roof, landed in the pews and didn't detonate. <laughs> So they have since deactivated the bomb, but the bomb is still in the church. So the explosive device is out, but the shell is still there. The shell is still in the That's church, crazy. and it's got like a little shrine around it. And, <laughs> and for them, it was a sign of God. Yeah. Th that city was destroyed during World War II. It was bombed out oh, multiple a, a times. Oh, port coast area that yeah. you could it was, land at? Yeah, it would have been obliterated by a lot of things. Yep, and that church had a bomb go right through the roof and didn't blow up. You know what amazes me? Is that for all we talk about how France from, and mostly World War One, they're still reeling from the amount of bombs that have been dropped on France from World War One to World War Two. There's designated zones you can't walk through because there's still active ordinances out there. You don't really hear about that in Italy. I've never, I've seen countless stories of farmer in France finds active bombs while planting a vineyard or moving his cows around or whatever. 
I never hear about that in Italy. I don't, and Italy had bombs dropped on it all the time, almost as much as France and Germany did. And I don't know if that's just because it wasn't World War I driven the way France and Germany was, but you know, we invaded Italy first before we did France. And we had bombers. I know this because my grandfather used to fly B-24s, and most of his missions were bombing Italy. And they did, uh, uh, there's that castle that was up on the mountain, that main point, uh, Monte Carlo. They bombed that all the time. They said they dropped thousands and thousands and thousands of bombs on this place. And you know, uh, if it was all coastal regions, you had battleships probably bombarding things. And I never, ever hear stories about, oh, you know, a farmer in Italy moving around a cliff planting a vineyard finds active ordnance. This is the first time you've ever said there was a bomb in a church, and it's only one I know. I wonder what that is or well, why I, that is. When I represented San Leonardo, we got a chance to see his motorcycle collection, and the Marchese at San Leonardo actually found an allied motorcycle that was airdropped and landed on his property and the allies didn't find it. Until <laughs> so, so he actually, when he got his property back, Did keep it. Yeah. He, when he got his property back, he was walking the far reaches of his property and he f- actually found a world war two motorcycle fully fitted with a parachute attached to it that he still has in his garage today. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it's his collection of tractors and motorcycles are amazing, but this one that he found on his property after World War II is insane. Like, I got a picture of him on it. I'll show you That's after really the podcast. Cool. Like a really awesome original. Dude, if you have that, we should put that up on the Instagram just to show that one. That's yeah. really cool. That's Because in my head, I think a band of brothers, you know, they get the little sidecar and they're driving that little thing around and it just happened to have one in his backyard. Yeah, and it's perfect. It's never, It's probably has a couple hundred miles on it. I wonder how many wines are still around from, let's say, 1940. Well, let's just say from the beginning of the war, 1939 to 1945, how many cellars that these guys, these families still have and how many, you know, did they make, and this has got to be weird. I mean, if you're in the middle of a war, do you still go out there and pick your grapes yes. while battles are all going around you and you're just hoping that nobody comes strolling through a tank or somebody shooting up everything during well, those times? Because well, you imagine it drinking a wine from 1944 when the Allies are thoroughly through Italy at this point and you're still chugging along making your wine well san leonardo he actually has a such an iconic property actually we'll do we should do a whole episode just on san leonardo Uh, i'll do their wines all day they're amazing they actually their property was the staging for the allies during world war one and the armistice that ended world war one was signed in their farmhouse which is crazy because everybody thinks that it was in the train in france so they got all the pictures. He actually has a mini museum that they built on the property that actually has all the pictures of it being signed and all the stuff associated with it. it was, it's pretty amazing. World War II, the axes, the Germans actually conquered the farmhouse and were staging from his farmhouse. He had to leave the farmhouse at that point, and they went down to Rome or whatever as a family. The vineyard manager, the cellar manager, bicycled up to the, the town like 100 miles north had the plans changed to show that they actually did not have a basement and they walled up walls of the basement and hid all the family's valuables and all the family's wine behind a fake wall. So when the Germans were staging from their farmhouse, they didn't realize it was a fake wall with all the valuables and the wine hidden behind it. That's crazy. So when he was able to come back five years later, the farmhouse was in shambles. He actually was sleeping on his pool table. (laughs) Yeah. So talking to the Marquesa was pretty amazing. Um, but they were able to keep all the family's jewels and all the wine from that year. So I'm sure he still has some of those old bottles from that time period. That's crazy to me because that's one story out of what was probably 
10,000 wineries in Italy. Like Italy alone probably has the most amount of stories behind their winery, their vineyard, just between the Romans being there from the BC area till now today. Like even France has some cool stories based upon what they've done in their area between the Gauls living there and then Rome coming through and so forth and so on. Same thing with Germans, the Spanish, even people in like Greece and stuff. America doesn't have those stories. It's like, oh, we had prohibition. And America's biggest story still to this day is the Paris tasting. Like that's it. We don't have the family tradition. We don't have these crazy. There's no bunker that somebody rewalled off somewhere, you know, in Sonoma or Napa Valley. We're like, well, we had to hide all this stuff because, you know, we were invaded by somebody. Thank God we don't have those stories. That's a true thing. That's crazy about that. that <laughs> right? Thank God. Like that's that's a weird thing because man, so- man in the High Castle. Oh, Imagine if they high- were having to hide all their wines. And I love that show. Yeah, I'm so- on season two right now of that one. It's getting better and better. Yeah. So here's another story that. Uh, I was representing a Frascati producer in Rome, and they had their vineyard manager was out there plowing the fields, and this guy was known for chain smoking. He just chain smoked all day <laughs> long out there. And one day, he never came home from plowing the fields, and they're trying to find him, and they just see this hole out in the vineyard with puffs of smoke coming out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's tractor had fallen through a hole in the ground, and it was a pre- BC aqueduct from the Roman time period, ancient, ancient Rome that just happened to collapse (laughs) and his tractor fell into it. And now there's this literally underneath their vineyards is a 2000 year old aqueduct that they just happened to find. And we got it crazy. The amount of stuff that built up over time, by the way, did the guy survive? I guess that's kind of important, but he couldn't get out. So he was just sitting down there chain smoking, waiting for someone to come. Wait, Was the tractor smoking or was he He smoking? smoking. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't have anything else to do. So he just sat there chain smoking. Oh man. That's how they found him. (laughs) That's so funny. That's crazy. Cause yeah, you think about like, so I got a cool chance to go to Pompeii and when you see the volcanoes right there. And, uh, you know, all that sediment kept building, 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 and look what it took to get there. You forget over two, 3,000 years of time when the Roman Empire was around the amount of stuff that would build up over time and pile up there. That, yeah, you, there might be a town under this vineyard from the Roman eras that they won't know is there until they go one day and dig up some area and like, oh, crap, we found a, you know, a pile of bricks or a clay pot or a pylon or something. And this guy had the unfortunate luck of falling into finding something. <laughs> and, the, and the fact they didn't know it was there for thousands of years, and there was a vineyard on top of it. That's crazy. Yeah, it was. we got a chance to actually walk into it and see it. And there was like an old door that was like 2,000 years old in there we got a chance to see that was unique. I bet there's a lot of cool places. There's probably a few left that eventually somebody will discover where there's some hidden wine room or something that somebody hid during a war or during a certain time that... It's going to take time and effort and uh, and 90% luck and just go, holy crap, look what we found. <laughs> I mean, humans have history amnesia. We don't remember most of our history because it wasn't written down. You don't know what happened. And so every time they unearth something, you learn something new about our history that we didn't know. I mean, it's pretty amazing. We don't know most of our origins. And an active continent or uh, an active plate that is Italy is constantly has volcanoes going off up and down it. I mean, a thousand year period of time can bury a lot of stuff with uh, with all those volcanoes constantly yeah. going on. Earthquake here, all of a sudden landslides. There was that one picture, uh, remember, uh, I think it was Piedmont, where that boulder rolled down the mountain and took out that one vineyard. Uh, that was up in the Dolomites. The Dolomites. That- I mean, it took out the vineyard, it took out the half the building, but if you looked at it, dude, that pushed so much soil off to the side, and that's just one rock rolling down. I got a chance to see that. Really? So when we were out there, we were driving. They said, hey, that's where that was taken. You got to see this giant scar on the side of the mountain 
where the rock broke free, slid down the side of the mountain and just scarred the side of it. And then it rolled down into the winery, into the vineyard. Um, but yeah. it was, They've since removed the boulder. They fixed oh, the they winery didn't leave up. the boulder there. That's too bad. That's a cool picture. We didn't drive up, so I wasn't able to see it, but I know they fixed it. I've read about it. But as you're driving by, you know, five or six miles away, you look up, and you just see this giant scar yeah. coming down the mountain, and you're like, that's where that happened. Yeah, I mean, if you go in, uh, I obviously Vesuvius is a good example because it blew up, but there's some places with the right mountain, you could see where the landslide hit. You're like, oh, there's the scar of that mountain moving. You know, most of these hills that everything is basically planted on is some type of a landslide and they just like well, we'll put grapes here someday down the line i was down in uh in palermo we were in sicily we went up to etna and i think it was like maybe five years before um we had arrived there the it, the volcano went off on this one side and when we were looking there were these little itty bitty t-shapes just sticking out of where the lava had rolled down we're like what was that and they go oh there used to be a ski lift there to bring people up the mountain and the hotel's gone but the ski lift top stands are still sticking out like they're right there just barely by the way and those things were probably 30 40 feet in the air that means 30 40 feet of rock or well in this case volcanic lava came out and packed that in and this is italy that whole place just does that all the time i mean i mean vesuvius is going to erupt one day and Take all that area out. And Etna's erupting right now, too, down in yeah. uh, Sicily. That's crazy. It's it's amazing what can be done in that, that area. And everybody keeps trucking along, war, volcano, doesn't matter, just making wine and eating food. I will say that when you visit Tuscany, you don't have to go out of your way to try and buy some crazy bottles of wine. You know what? Go to the local restaurant, order the Rosso. It's going to be Sangiovese, and it's going to be delicious. It's going to be two euros a carafe, maybe three. And or the regional food, the regional food is a lot of wild boar. You end up with like pastas with yeah. wild boar sauce. It's their chingale. If you're ever in Tuscany, that's like the thing you have to have. Chingale is chingale. Yeah, you know they're like they're. It's almost like a bolognese sauce. That is one thing I did absolutely love about Italy. Italy was the food was honestly, and I think there's a thing you can tell about it being home cooked. Like everything's uniquely different in its own way. But the one thing I loved is. Dude, they would pour bottles of wine that they'd be like, yeah, it's, you know, it's just from this village. Oh, what is it? Well, we think it's this. You know, if it's not like a mass-produced guy, it's just a family, it's their house, and three vineyards behind their house are like, yeah, it's been here for like 200 years and whatever. Or if they replant it, they're just like, well, it's the same thing from that guy's root. Like, uh, I was talking to one person who actually did speak good English. They got their rootstocks from their neighbor because their vineyard died in like a real freak pesticide incident. And they were like, well, we didn't go to a place. We just rootstocked from our neighbor. And he goes, well, what does he grow? And he's like, I don't remember what he grows. And he doesn't remember what he goes. It's been passed down for 13 generations. <laughs> How many espressos have you had today? A lot. Because <laughs> you are on fire today. I love it, man. Dude, it's your <laughs> stuff, man. You poured this for me. And look at this. This is only like halfway gone. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to see if you actually take a breath between any of these conversations. Dude, my hand, I'm not speaking Italian with my hand. I'm actually just physically shaking over here. I, I feel bad sometimes for the Italians and what's happened in America, though, because we have almost ruined the Italian cuisine. Think about what we consider Italian. Um, not we, as in you and I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. The majority of the America. The American idea of Italian food. Olive Garden with, with mediocre Chianti. And you so, don't get unlimited breadsticks in Italy. <laughs> yeah, Alfredo sauce and spaghetti and meatballs don't exist in Italy. Like, no. The Italian, I didn't see a meatball in Italy once. The Itali it's because it's not Italian. It's not the, like P.F. Chang's is not Chinese food. <laughs> Taco Bell is in Mexican food. <laughs> I mean, there's... Dude, McDonald's isn't technically any food, too, so I guess there's fast food things, so... But, you know, 
the Italians, do you know what they think is American food? Oh, please say cheeseburgers. That's it. That's you it. nailed it. Excellent. So my first time actually having dinner with 40 Italian winemakers, uh, we're all sitting around the table. We're at a high-end like seafood restaurant in Seattle. And of course, it's, it's Seattle. Gotta, Seattle. Gotta have seafood. Gotta have seafood. Literally, they all ordered burgers at a seafood restaurant. That's so weird. I was like, what is going on? They looked at me and were like, we're here in America. We want to have American food. Like, got to have a burger. And that, literally, that's all they wanted were burgers. I wonder if they feel the same way. If, like, let's say I had no knowledge and I went out there and I went, hey, can I get a pasta and meatballs covered in marinara? If they just look at me like, what are you talking about? That's We don't do that in this area. <laughs> I mean, their cuisine is actually fairly light. They do do pasta as a first course or a premie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's or it's either a premium or a secondi, so it's either a first or second course. But it's not your main entree. They rarely do yes. pasta as a main entree. Absolutely, I, I was surprised at how much, uh, uh, I guess, meat I had. And this sounds weird because, like most time, you know, we eat steak and stuff out. But I was really surprised with at the end they would come out with like a beef stew without it actually being a stew. It was more like an easily pull apart beef. Um, the bistecca florentine yeah you know like the big tomahawks are just the like tomahawk you had those those shanks too a lot of shanks a lot, a lot of I, one thing i noticed about it was a lot of lamb yes a lot of lamb and i loved it man it was so good but then once you got on to the more southern end fish all fish o- driven all over think about italy it's surround it's basically almost like an island it's surrounded on three quarters of it by the ocean I mean, yeah. it's, it's like Florida. Like when you think it is Florida, yeah, it's you, the Florida of Europe. <laughs> yeah, well, it, they, we used to say that Italy is the size of Florida and Georgia, but it's the number one wine growing region in the world. And people are like, "Whoa, really?" Because you think America's so big, we're not even close to what Italy does in, oh. in volume. And Italy is the size of Florida and Georgia. It'll take us a hundred years to put vineyards like crazy throughout America the way Italy has done it. <laughs> but besides Latin cuisine, when you think Florida, you think a lot of seafood. Yes, and that's Italy. And gators and, you know, some other unique food. But Italy has its unique food, too. Thus, the wild boars. Thus, the truffles. Mm -hmm. Thus, when you're in the north, they have something that parts of the world think is taboo. Horse. Yes. Very, very common. I had a horse sausage. I didn't realize how popular it was to eat horse. I had, like, a horse pasta that was... Almost like a red, it was almost like the the chingale when they did it in the red sauce, where it was a slow, slow braised meat, and it was in like a tomato based sauce in a pasta. Yeah, I preferred. I really, really enjoyed when we were just on that cusp of that northwest, or excuse me, northeast side of Italy. All of a sudden, the sausages that started coming into play from that area it had that real German influence. You know, it was a lot of uh, a lot of real unique styles of meats. And the sausages they had, that's where I had the horse sausage, was absolutely amazing. It was really, really cool to like have stuff. But that's also I started noticing a little beer kind of was popping in in that northeast area. Versus you get over to northwest Piemonte area, and it's more like French cuisine in style in well, its own weird way. Well, the northeast of Italy has been under multiple countries' control. Parts of northeast Italy are very new to being Italian. They've been Austria. They've been, you know, when you get up in Trentino... Ita- it looks German. Italy is not their first, or Italian is not their first language. You know, you can go to a restaurant and you can get pizza and spetzel at the same restaurant. Yeah. You know, that's it's very German-Austrian feeling when you're up in Trento. Yeah. Those, that border area of, uh, the, what is that, the Alps? Yeah. What, yeah. When you get up to like Sud Tirol, um, a lot of those names, like the, the 
all those uh, Gruners, Kerners, Sylvaners stuff we drink. Those oh, are, the Kerners, so good. But they're all Hoffs. Strasserhof, Pockerhof. Oh, yeah, Pockerhof, yeah. I mean, everything's got a Hoff. Hoff is a vineyard site. It's like a Finca or like a, you know, in uh, Castello de, or not Castello's yeah. Castle, but... You know, a lot of those. If I you're, get what you're going with. If you're yeah. in South America, you know, all the wines have like a certain prefix to well, them. Well, it's like what's the what's the thing in Northwest Side? It's Hacienda. Uh, is that am I saying that right? Hacienda Agricole, like basically house making wine. You actually said that really well. Hacienda, excellent. Yeah. It's it's an agricultural house. Okay, yeah, yeah. Is is basically is what that translates to? Yeah, like chateau or something like that. Exactly. So that when you see a Hof, like Strasserhof, Pockerhof. All those hops, that's just basically the word for house. One thing I have been noticing more, especially the more I drink these wines, is I get now a little bit where they've tailored wines to match certain foods. And I think that's a huge thing. I think that's a massive blind spot we have in America is we've never really had the cuisine to match the wines. And versus, you know, if you're making this wine for hundreds and hundreds of years, you can finally be like, okay, well, it doesn't, we eat, you know, Chingali all the time and having it over macerated, this doesn't work. So eventually over 300 years, it works its way out. In America, we don't have that. There's no California cuisine because it's so diverse and different. There's no Oregon, no Washington cuisine we've also for always, the wines. We've also always been able to produce every not always but every type of cuisine or different styles whereas i mean you can get a tomato year round here you can get certain things all the time where in italy you cooked what was in season you cooked like they weren't all of a sudden getting some new crazy ingredient that's true you're right they they made stuff that was tomato based when tomatoes were fresh and then once tomatoes were out of season you went to your stewed tomatoes because that's what was in a can and you were able to get through the off season or the breads or the meats or the fish. It's what you're catching that time of the year or what's being produced. If it's a vegetable or a fruit, it's whatever's in season and they're not bringing in something random. Whereas here, I can go and get a banana anytime. I can get a tomato yeah. anytime. Avocados, cucumbers, doesn't matter, all year round. So, so we don't necessarily have quite the, the cuisine history that Europe has. Yes. Whereas, yeah, you're right. The wines and the food have been able to almost harmonize over the years. You know, they have a lot of rich foods over there and rich fatty foods. Like the meats tend to be a little fattier. Sometimes, you know, you end up with this, this grilled steak or you end up with the chingala, you end up with soprasada, capicola, you end up with prosciutto. What's going to go with prosciutto? A, a wimpy wine that has no acid. You're going to have, Pino, it's not going to work. Pinot yeah. Noir and prosciutto. Yeah, it works, but not as not good as, as Sangiovese and prosciutto. Yeah. Not as good as, Brunello and Soprasada. Which is weird, because you think with that that acid a Pinot Noir has, it should work. It should, but the temperature doesn't really kind of allow for it. But you still have that thin skin, because if you had too much tannin in a wine, it's not going to go well with that Soprasada or the uh, that prosciutto. But that fatty salt goes so well with the acid of a Sangiovese. It's amazing how... It's the they, acid. Yeah, and that's why the acid. And I can understand why Italy has embraced this grape more than any other grape out there. Sangiovese is an insanely awesome grape. And I'm actually like, I'm, I'm real happy that we get to constantly do these. And I, I feel like we're going to spend a lot of time in Italy constantly trying new things. But a lot of things are going to come down to like Nebbiolo, like even Nebbiolo, it's a super high acid wine. It goes amazing with a lot of wines. Obviously the tannin is through the roof, but it's all that high acid stuff. You know, it's their food wines. It, in Italy, wine is a food group. 
here, here <laughs> yeah. wine is a cocktail. I imagine, yeah. I imagine the doctors in Italy turn around and go, okay, now make sure you take your medicine with your wine. Hashtag wine is a food group. Hashtag wine is a food group. Hold on. <laughs> we got to do I'm, that one. I'm writing this down. Yes, it is. That's going to be, we're going to start that one. Because they don't necessarily just have wine just to have wine on a Tuesday. They don't, they have them together. They, they will have wine on a Tuesday afternoon, but they're going to have a little bit of food with they're it. They're also, in my mind, I'm imagining, and I'm, and I'm also kind of remembering, they snack healthy-ish. Like, every snack that we ate, they're constantly eating, but it's olives, it's tomatoes, it's, you know, mozzarella. There's, it's, there's two other things we didn't talk about. Olives, you have the oil from the olives, so olive oils. Also, the acid in the wine is going to clean your palate of the oiliness yes. of olives. That and cheese. Cheese. Yeah. Every region in Italy has a their own cheese. When you go to the central north, that's where Reggiano's from. Like Parmesan Reggiano's. Parmesan. I mean, that's the name of the town. They have an entire bank that sits on holding their cheese. <laughs> yeah. And when you're in the south, the cheeses are so different than the cheeses of the north. And the wines are almost, they're, they're meant to go with the cheese of the region, and it just ended up that way. It's not like someone planned it. They said, ooh, we need to develop this cheese to go with Falangina. No, they just figured out, that they just developed together over 2,000 years. Yeah. 50 generations, and yeah. they figured it out. And real family, like, they don't, it's not that they don't leave, but, like, they they know they their great-grandchildren, when they're still alive, are out in the vineyard sometimes. Because, you know, you bring the grandchildren, go pick this vine, so they get a feel of, okay, this is what they're doing. And all of a sudden, one day, they inherit the site to teach their children and grandchildren. And, yeah, they're sitting there like, all right, family dinner, which that's the one thing I loved about Italian stuff, was when they, no joke, said family dinner, the family sat around a table, and it was wine, cheese, salad, pasta. Meat. Like, it was just a smorgasbord of stuff across the table and, and the wine went well with it the, the white wine guy from there the red wine from there it was amazing five so hours good. five hours that was like it was it's, that, a, it's a it's an afternoon we missed a basketball game because we had no idea how long it was it was my very first experience with a true italian not a we went to a hotel and ate not a we went to an american chain we went to a small little family dinner we got there at four o'clock assuming we were just gonna have like a light dinner before we got to the game at seven we straight missed it it was a four-hour dinner. It was amazing. We didn't even bother to go. It was so much fun. Dude, they just kept bringing food out and food. And it wasn't what you thought of a Buca di Beppo or a... Uh, uh, um, any of uh, Yeah, right. It was just, here's, a, here's a tub of food. Man, it was so good. But but they enjoy and eat all day. It's like, here's some olives. Here's some nuts. Here's some meats. Here's some cheeses. Here's this. Here's that. Dude, sardines were so popular. I couldn't believe... It's the first time I had a sardine that wasn't salty out of a can. It was amazing. Yeah, I love the little Spanish white anchovies. They're my. They're one of my anchovies, most yeah. favorite things in the world. I, you know what I hated? I hated it so much and I was offered it a couple times. Was that snail? That was their version of escargot, basically. It's ugh, not having it. I don't think I have ever had snail in Italy. Um, it, I was when we were in uh, right at that border, right where Nice. You got to go through Nice, and then you drive around, and then eventually you hit the border area. The the one thing that kind of that I like, but I don't necessarily like a tons of it, is going to be uh, not carpaccio, but like the the ball of raw meat. What's carpaccio? Carpaccio is like thin slices of meat that's like kind of all over. Like if you have like a steak carpaccio, it's raw steak. And they cut it in thin slices and it'll be, you know, laid on a plate. And you could okay. actually just take like a piece of bread and scrape it across the plate and scrape off these pieces of just raw meat, uncooked. Huh. 
Whereas, kind of like a like a tartar, like that's like what steak I'm tartar. So tartar is actually like diced up in a ball. It looks like a hamburger ball that's, that's uncooked. Raw. Yeah, and they'll use a raw egg in it so often. Yeah. Well. In parts of northern Italy... <laughs> There's I've, people out there like, oh my God, how do you not get salmonella? In parts of Italy, I've had baseball and softball size portions of tartare served to me as one portion. Wow. And when it comes out and they set it down in front of you, you're like, really? <laughs> Can I? Is that really? Do I have to eat all of this? I like it in small doses. I don't know if I want to eat eight ounces of raw meat. <laughs> and that's one of the few things in Italy that I was kind of like, I enjoy it, just not in that larger quantity. Now, yes. now, I've also had tartare a hundred different times in Italy in twenty different regions. So I've everybody's had, got their own style. They do. I mean, and it's very popular in the northwest. It's very popular in Piedmont. That's where yeah. That's that, that. That's that French cuisine style. You're gonna see it up there a ton. Almost every Barolo producer, when we went to dinner with them or lunch, we'd have a ball of tartare. Really? Yeah. This seems more. I guess being up there, like you would get more, um, and, and and this is going to sound awful, but you don't really get like a dinner the way we have dinner. Like you just have dinner. There's this more as like it's a long period of time. There's no set thing. You get a lot of cheese plates, uh, eatable meats. Like you're just constantly picking at things. Like I, in my mind, I'm not picturing a big giant plate of something. You know, I mean, that's just how I experienced it was like that three hours of eating. There was no main dish. They obviously had names for it. Antipasto, prime, seconde, those things. But it was just like, here's, they're just giving you so much food to eat from. But there was at no point where I figured that was the main dish, even though they may have a name for it. But it felt more like what we were just eating was an entire experience of food. Exactly. You're having dinner. You're not having first course, second course, Dinner's not a plate. Dinner's an experience. An experience. Yep. Yeah. You just nailed it right there. Yeah. That's what it felt like when I was up there for that. That was, it was awesome, man. Dude, it was, and the best thing was, is uh, I, I got lucky enough to go at a time when truffle season was just ending. So they would come out with fresh truffles. Now they definitely, the one place we stayed at uh, when we were playing was um, uh, they had uh, uh, pigs, which blew my mind. They were using pigs to find truffles. I couldn't believe that. I was like, wait, what? And I had no idea what a truffle was. I knew I had truffle fries in my life before, so I just assumed it was something you put on. And this dude would walk around, and he had four truffles. He was very proud of three of them because apparently they were going to pay his bills for the year, which I was like, wait, what? Like, they're worth that much money? And then he had his, this is for the family, and that dude shaved it on everything. And I'm sorry, I don't think a truffle tastes like anything, but holy crap, if it doesn't make the entire area smell amazing. Some of the tartars we would have over there, they would shave so much truffle on it, you couldn't even see the tartare underneath it. It was just pure truffle? Just truffles just shaved all over the so top like of it. like $1,000 worth of shaved truffle on your tartare. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's different over there than it is here. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. That's such a crazy thing that they took a mushroom, it's, that's all it is, just a mushroom, and then they sell it for thousands and thousands of dollars an ounce, and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars a truffle. So they use both pigs and dogs to find truffles. I knew the dog one. It was the pig one that surprised me. So from what I was told is that you, the pigs have a problem where they'll sometimes eat them, so you have to watch your pigs as they're looking for them. Oh, so they find it, and you got to immediately and, pull that pig back. And 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 sometimes the dog will pee on them. So there, uh, there's, there's positives and downsides to using both animals. Yeah. Um, we got a chance to meet the number one truffle dog in like all of Italy. Hold on, let's take a guess. What would be a good dog? Was it a 
what are they, like a hound of some type? Yeah, because those feel like those are the big ones that yeah, people I, use. Because they have good I'm nose. Picking like a basset hound in my head. Because they have good noses. Yeah, and I think from what I remember, it kind of was. I'll, when we're done, I'll show you a picture of uh, that truffle dog. I, mean, I don't see anybody with a husky or a German shepherd out there no. looking for. <laughs> it was a smaller dog. I mean, it was kind of like a hound looking thing. Yeah, that's really cool. And and so I watched a documentary on uh, Barolo because they were talking about uh, how it modernized and and they had these things called the Barolo Boys. And there was one little snippet where they went and I'm pretty sure it's this documentary and they showed them hunting for truffles and they turned to the camera guy and they were like, you can't come with us. Like, no, like this is our pocket. Leave us alone. We don't want anybody else to know where truffles kind of grow, which is so weird. Like you can't just make truffles like you can grow portobellos in places you could do things. But truffles are just a crapshoot. Yeah, they're they can't create them in a lab. You know, yeah. you can make mushrooms in a lab. You can grow tomatoes in a lab. I mean, they can grow shit on the moon now they're doing. Like, the Chinese are doing, like, vegetables on the moon. If you started. got the right buddy, he's got mushrooms glowing in his closet. But they've never been able to... <laughs> glowing, growing. It's the same thing. They've never been able to produce truffles. Yeah, truffle spores don't move. Naturally. Or uh, unnaturally. Like, just in a closet. What is if, uh, if they could, I'd have a truffle farm growing in my back room right now. We'd be, we, we could drink all the wine in the world we want at that point. Forget growing weed. I'm going to grow truffles. Like, that's right. I mean, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah, L- literally. And more, probably. Yeah. I mean, if I could have a truffle farm back there and supply the local restaurants, ka-ching. Just start planting oak trees and see the Arizona truffle. One I, would, day. I would be moving out of Taco Row. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So what do, you, what do you think of these wines now that they're opening up a little bit? Because they're definitely changing. It's funny. That's what I was going to ask you. All right. So going back to the Rufino, it's holding steady. It's uh, it's not like it's... That knows, though. For me, potpourri. I know I said hippie uh, earlier, but that maybe that's something that will resonate more not, with the public. Yeah, but not, not like I just bought a fresh bag of potpourri. Like, the potpourri's been in the bathroom for like a month now. It still has a smell, but it's on the tail end of the smell. Well, do you know how like potpourri, they usually put it inside of like water and yes. they'll put a little candle underneath it and it kind of gives off. Oh, I've never seen that. I just, most people I see potpourri, it's just a basket of potpourri sitting above your toilet. Yeah. So what they, the, the, the way people did it back in the, you know, the eighties and nineties is it was almost like a lobster butter warmer where it'd be like a little dish with water and potpourri in it, and you like the little candle underneath it, and as it warms up, it gives off all that scent. That's what this smells like to me. I'm with you on that one. That one smells more to me like what you're thinking about more than the hippie shot. Now, the headshot made sense for like a second. That's That was the smell. When I first opened it, and I smelled it when I pulled that cork out, and I looked at it, and you went, that's a weird smell. That's not what I would expect from Sangiovese. This is, yeah, it smells like a really funky potpourri. And I didn't see, did this bottle have the black rooster on it? It, uh... It, yes, it's right. Hold on. Yes, there it is. There it is. I ripped the capsule off of it. Yeah. With the little band that tore off. Um, but yeah, so this old Rufino, I'm like... I think it's delicious right now. I'm, I think this, this, this did... It's an old wine. It's definitely old. I don't think most people, uh, most wine drinkers would like it. I'm not convinced that if you and I gave this to friends that just wanted to drink wine, that they would enjoy this the way you and I are kind of sitting here. Like, you know, a lot of people who love wine could kind of enjoy the weird weirdness of this. What, uh, what was the wine we did earlier? What we said, you know, if this was somebody gave this to us, it'd be a six. But now that we told it, it was older, it gets like a eight or something. Yeah. One, one back there. I think the same idea. If you gave this to somebody, and said, hey, try this Rufino. What do you think? They'd be like, oh, you know, it's weird. 
But if you told them it's from 2002, they'd be like, wow, that's crazy. It's, as it's opening up, it's getting more and more complex too. I mean, for me, really the acid is so defined still. This wine, I think in five years, it would taste almost exactly the way it tastes like right now. I know I said it's on the top of the hill. I don't think it's going necessarily off the hill in the next couple of years. It's definitely lost the fruit. I think it's a great expression. I was worried. I really was. Yeah. You know that because to me, I think of Rafino personally, I think of it as the Mandavi of Italy in a way or I, the Kendall Jackson. I love that now it's been two, two times that I brought a wine, maybe three times, even the Joseph Phelps. You looked at me and you were like, no way. This is not going to, this uh, This is going to, it's not, you didn't think it was going to suck. You thought it wasn't going to make it. And now we've been surprised that it did make it. It didn't fall apart because you and I have had wines. Like we had that 2003 Burgundy, fell apart. There was nothing there. We didn't really enjoy it. And then we get something like this and you're like, you know what? There's a lot of life to this thing. You're right. The fruit's gone. In my opinion, I'm not finding almost any fruit, but it's still, it's not fresh, but it's lively. The acid is holding it together still. It's gone more earth and floral than fruit. Whereas the Rubiolo is more fruit and creaminess and brightness. Um, and there is, there's a huge difference between floral and fruit. I mean, this, this Rubiolo still to me is, it's, it's like strawberries and cream. Cause there's a real creaminess to it too. Sorry. My left leg is totally asleep right now. <laughs> He's, That's why I'm looking so weird. Like I sat on it for so long and now there's no feeling in it. I'm sure. Everybody needs to know that right now. I know. (laughs) That was weird. That's why I'm like laughing off in the corner like, holy crap. (laughs) So another thing about this Rubiolo that was actually pretty special, or not the Rubiolo, but the winery, they're trying some modern techniques and things that other people aren't doing. So they bought some barrels that were more expensive than the most expensive French oak barrel you can ever buy. Okay, so you know this. Are they using new oak on their wine? This... No, I don't the, know how the, the rules the, the, or laws the, the, work. This, for this it. is aged in larger barrels. These are twenty-five hectoliter barrels, I believe, I like the Botis, almost in style. They're, yeah, they're a little bigger. Um, they're not quite as big as some of the other Chianti producers that I've seen out there. <laughs> Let um, me. Can you stand up in the barrel like some can? If you're short, you can. So you can bend over in the barrel. I've seen producers where like twenty of us could throw a party, like a dance party, in the barrel, <laughs> like and not touch each other the entire time because they're so big. A huge. So, but let me go back to this barrel. So they have these barrels that are, they almost have like a pressure gauge on them and they're meant for whole cluster fermentation in the barrel. Okay. They're the only producer in the world I've seen do this is where they will actually take the barrels, jam it full of all the clusters, seal it up and let it sit there for a year and a half on its whole clusters and not only ferment, but age on the clusters. That's crazy, because usually I've had whole clustered wine, and it pulls that green note out too much. So they're clearly... But they're 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 cluster fermenting it, then... And aging it. Then pulling it... Other people you've had have cluster fermented it. And then strained the it, juice out. Strain the juice, and then age that in an oak barrel. These are the clusters aging in the barrel. These are slow toast oak barrels. They've actually toasted them with like a candle over like a six month time period for a slow, slow toast. That's crazy. 
they've only done a couple vintages of this wine. We got a chance to try it when I was there. This that's not this wine. Okay. This is one of their I, higher I was, end wines. For people listening, I was pointing at the bottle asking if that was this one. This is a different one that they do. Correct. Okay. So this is not the one that's aged whole cluster because that gets up to be about like 100, you, 150, 200 a bottle. Kind I was going to say, point. how is it 25 bucks then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. So when we were there, we got a chance to see them. We got a chance to try some of the wine out of that. And I was with somebody that I respected an awful lot in the business who was like me. We've seen it all. I came up to him an hour later. I said, so what do you think of that wine? And he gave me this look and went, I still haven't even tried it. Because he was just enjoying the nose and the intricacies of it. Just, it's, it was so different and had so much depth. It was one of those wines I'm really looking forward to trying someday. Do you have one? I don't. Okay. I'll, I'll get one. <laughs> Damn right we are. This is one of those vineyards that I hope to stay at next time we go to Tuscany and have a chance to stay with them. They've, they've said that it's open if I want to come out there. I don't like taking advantage of it, though. So I think one day we'll have to sit down and do a focused podcast on just a straight-up vineyard. Because I, I like to do that. I think sometimes it's really fun to say, hey, we're going to do a podcast on Rubiello, and they're going to give us their Chianti, the Chianti Classico, this ridiculous barrel-aged one. Like Argiano's one for me that I think is really cool. I think from top to bottom, Argiano has really awesome wines, and one super crazy wine, that Swallow, that you know is fun to try. And I think that's going away. Actually, I'm positive that's going away. I think away. it is going away. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's unfortunate, but... I've got some, so I'm happy. I got one or two of them back there as well. Excellent. So we'll do a Fasacola episode. Um, Stefano said he'd send me it, so we'll be able to chant. We'll try his Rosso next to his Brunello, next to his Brunello Reserve. So we're going to have a chance to try three different expressions of his Sangiovese Grosso. When I say Sangiovese Grosso, that is a, another clone version of Sangiovese that they grow for Brunello. So there's a number of different clones out there that have little nuances that are different. And so Sangiovese Grosso tends to be a little more complex, a little more, or- I always say it's a little more ornery, um, takes a little more care along the way. Sorry, I was moving those around because smelling them is insane. Like- They're so different. I mean, really, to me, this is a rustic expression. This is a modern expression. And that's what's really so special about it is to see, granted, there's a lot of years difference between these. Yes. Well, nine years. Yeah. But I nine th- years will make a difference, but the, the, the main thing to me is they both have a good amount of acid, a really solid, right amount of acid where it's not holy crap bitter. But I'd imagine this Rubiolo might be exactly what somebody else, like if somebody else down the line has did what I did where I just randomly got this Rufino in a uh, collection that I got, and they'd be like, what's this Rubiolo, 2011? And let's pretend it's, you know... Uh, 2027, they'd be like, wow, it's a 16-year-old Rubiolo. Can this hold? You know what? I think it can. I, I think with this acid and this flavor, I think it'll make it 16 years. Well, I think the way this Rubiolo is already aged, it would still be very bright after 12, 13, 14 years just because it's a modern expression of it. I think don't, so? I do. I re- this, Brandon, I'm speculating here. Yeah. But, well, that's what we all do when we drink a brand new wine. It's all speculation. And there's only nine years difference between these. So this is already has gone through, what, this is an 11. It's, it's what year is it? <laughs> We're at 2019 <laughs> officially. So, so it's technically a seven-year wine because it was going off 28, seven-year-old wine. Yeah, it's, it's halfway to this one in age. Yeah. And it's still bright. I mean, to me, this, it, it's fresh as a daisy. It's 
taste yes. like it's a new vintage. It does taste like a wine that if you brought it to a party, people are like, oh, that's a fresh wine. Like there is a, it's a weird thing telling people there's a freshness in wine and it's not what it smells like. It's how it tastes. Now, I also loved the 11 vintage. The 11 vintage to me is one of my favorite vintages I've been able to experience. Out Wasn't of 10 and 11 in Italy just considered just fantastic? 10 was the reviewer's favorite vintage. I thought okay. it was a little... Universal? Yes. I, it didn't have the nuances that I wanted. It was very user-friendly is the best way to put 10. I think everybody would enjoy a 10. 11 had more acid to me. Every 11 I had, all the Brunellos, the Rosos, all the Sangioveses, they were a little more zippy, and I'm, I'm an acid junkie in my wine. So the, it wasn't as fruit-forward and round as the 10s, but I enjoyed the zippiness of the 11s. 9, 10, and 11 were stunning years all around. I mean, yeah. you had to be a moron to screw up a 10 vintage. Yes. I mean, where you learn the true talent of a winemaker is in a bad vintage. True. Yeah, just, just enough where it changes the vineyard site that nobody else is the same, but not enough where it's so bad that everybody's going to struggle. I mean, I could have made a good wine in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just, it's, it's a no brainer vintage. I mean, you just let it do its own thing no, and hang out. Yeah. Nobody did bad. So vintage. I want to, I, I do would like to see, and I'm on a, I would like to know what happened in 2002 in Chianti and I'm not going to look it up right now, but I'd be intrigued to see 2002 would have been a good year. In the wine industry, uh, you know, know, I don't have my vintage reports handy. Um, it actually was something we should actually talk a little bit about. But the problem with vintage, Find it in ten seconds. I'll be honest, a lot of you can't always go by vintage reports. No, you can't because it's very broad. This is my problem with them: is people generalize it in such a way where they'll be like, "Oh, Italy, it's a five star vintage." Well, is that Northern Italy, Southern Italy, Central Italy? I know one thing. I've been in Italy, and I've been on one side of the mountain, and it's cold and rainy, and you go to the other side of the mountain, and it's sunny and warm. So here's an interesting thing. Check this out. So I just pulled up Wine Spectator's uh, vintage chart. 2011, got a 93. That's what they're saying. For Chianti Classico, I looked up the Chianti Classico region. And then most are universal. They hang between 92, 93, 89, 88, and then 2015 is 97. 2002 is considered the worst oh, year yeah. they've ever had. Oh, two and oh three, yeah. We're we're, we're well. Oh three, they gave nine. But here, check it out. 2002. I'm going to show you. Yeah, it got a 79. Yeah. yeah, because it was it was a it never warmed up. It was super rainy. Uh, duh. How did I not remember that? Yes, it's literally the, the worst, worst year. And this wine is good. So. I had a white wine from 02 a couple of years ago because a guy wanted to open it to showcase what a, pr a producer can do in, quote, bad vintage. So in some of these vintages, people won't even make a wine. I'm, I can almost guarantee probably San Leonardo probably didn't make yeah. a vintage in 02. Yeah. How did I not remember that? That is weird because that's, that's something that, you know, like for me, 2011 was a bad year in California because people can kind of remember that and stuff. But yeah, that's, it's amazing that they gave it such a terrible year. Um, it never warmed. It never warmed, never warmed up. up. It was it was really really wet. So, yeah. So it's uh, a lot of rain and cold snaps so, and. So those people that are listening, a lot of times when you get a really wet vintage, your wine will get very green beany. You get a green bean, super yeah. green bean vintage. I mean, that's just kind of the flavor profile that comes out. Now, if you're somebody who's mass producing, that's doing. You know, it doesn't happen in Italy, but in America, you start adding mega purple. You make your wine taste the same every vintage. You could pull from certain parts. And I, this has got to be something you'll know really well, is you can pull from different parts of different sides of the state. So you can get your Cabernet from Napa and go, uh, it's not what I wanted. But Mendocino might have had the best time ever. So you can kind of pack that in there. You can't do that 
here. No. If you got Chianti, it's got to be in that small little subzone. Yep. So if that whole region just took it terribly, you're kind of SOL. That's what I, that's, is that right? Yeah. I mean, and once again, though, just because it was a bad vintage, you might have had one guy where all the runoff came down the hill and he was flooded out. Oh, yeah. But, but the guy up on the top of the hill had good drainage. So he got the sun. He didn't get the fall. <laughs> you, you could have been a five iron away and your wine is shit and his wine is great. And that's literally, it's that much of a difference changes it. That's why sometimes vintage, vintage reports are good as a generalization, but it doesn't show the whole truth. It doesn't speak for the winery. No. Yeah. It speaks for the region it, might be a problem. It, it's like if you buy an old car, you know, most likely our old cars are going to suck, but maybe that one guy took such great care of it, cleaned it all the time and was meticulous and I'm like, holy crap, this is an amazing version of this, even though... Hey, it's an old crappy car. You could have five neighbors that produce a shitty wine, and you just happen to have a really good one. What's special about, uh, say, Brunello de Montalcino, though, in a bad year, some people will declassify their Brunello, and instead of making Brunello, they will just make all Rosso. So can you do that with Chianti? Is there a, is there a declassification that people can do? Or is it just, uh, are Chianti. they stuck in Chianti? It's Chianti. Okay. I mean, you might be able to, you might not make a Reserva that year. You might just make your regular. If you normally make Reserva and take all your Reserva vineyards and put them in your regular. Um, but the main one that I see is something like Brunello. The best producers of Brunello in a bad year will often not make it. Or they'll make less and they'll take a, they'll take their, if there's 20 barrels, they will take four of their best ones and make their Brunello. And the other Barrels that were destined for Brunello will get declassified. Barolo does that too, obviously. Barolo, if they don't like it being a Barolo, can declassify it to Longue, or excuse me, uh, Nebbiolo de Alba or Osti or Longue or something. Yes. So Chianti's kind of stuck in a, if they have a great year, cool, it's Chianti. But if they have a bad year, they're still stuck with it being Chianti. But can Chi- they say Sangiovese, IGT? But, can- that, that's, but Chianti's already the introductory li- line. That's why you have Reserva. That's why they have Grand Selezione now. Oh, so, so they're so, expanding so, exactly. on so, the name. So, so to me, I consider Grand Selezione the Brunello of Chianti. Okay. It has the four years of age. It has the oak requirements, lower yields. So it's that... Grand Selezione is the Chianti region trying to compete with Brunello. Oh, so they're trying to move up the ladder. Correct. Okay. So, so what I would say is that on the bad years, they might not make Grand Selezione. They will declassify that to just regular Chianti or Chianti Reserva. Mm. It's probably the best way to put it. You, it's, it's like saying like your Rosso is not as good as normal, so you're going to declassify it lower than Rosso. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what you're trying to do. Like, so it's basically, instead of making the, the higher tier, you'll so just make... So Chianti, in a, in just because of where they're stuck, is the... Like, if you're in Chianti, not Chianti Classico, you're in Chianti, you have Chianti, is also the best and also the worst. And now they're trying to open up the door to make a better version so that they can yeah. say, hey, listen... You know, if you get a Chianti, it's good or it's a bad year, but it's an amazing year. This is the best that we have. We got Chianti Classico I mean, I guess or you, uh, uh, Grand Selezione. I guess you could just make something like a Sangiovese Toscana. It is not a Dio. Just your Vino, what do they call it? Vindapot? No, that's France. Uh, to, to, Vino de Table. Yes, exactly. Because you can't, because Sangiovese is the grape that goes into Chianti DOC. If you're not going to hit your DOC classification, then you just call it Sangiovese or table wine. Yeah. Now, something we haven't touched on that we should probably just take a minute to talk about is Super Tuscans. Yeah. Because though we're not having one, it is 
probably the most well-known wine out of Tuscany in America. It's funny because I can think of the three off the top of my head that most people would think of. And considering one of them this year got number one wine of the year, is that Sasakaya? Yep. And that's a super Tuscan. Tignanello, Tignanella, Orna, Ornalaya. Yep, it's the Ayas are the big ones I always said. It was Ornalaya, Sasakaya, um, Solaya, and there's another one. It was a, it's a, they were all made by the same guy, too. Really? A guy named Giacomo Taki is the main guy behind the name Super Tuscan. Oh, Giacomo is the most Italian name. Yep. Giacomo Taki. I wonder what that translates to in English or like in the American Jack. name. Jack, is it? I believe Jack? so. Yeah. Giacomo. Yeah, Jack, Giacomo. Okay, okay. So Sangiovese is, as we said, a very high acid grape, but it's not so fleshy and juicy like Cabernet Sauvignon. So you mix Sangiovese and Cabernet Sauvignon, it is actually an amazing blend. It is, it's the acid from Sangio with the juiciness of Cab. And the thing about cab, cab, though the Italians don't want to admit it, it grows like a weed in Tuscany. It's actually the easiest grape to grow in all well, of Tuscany. Well, you know, you got me onto that, that Castella de Rom... Uh, say that for me. Castella Ramp- de- yeah, Rampola. Yeah. yeah. It was the Samarco. Yeah. I drank that, by the way. I think I drank 100. it way w- too young. 100.1. Dude, it was 2010, and I drank it last year, and I was like, well, I should have let that sit for a long time. R- Rampola is considered one of the top houses of Chianti Classico Dude, that there it was, is. Now, the crazy thing about drinking that cab, it was treated clearly like a Sangiovese. It was light. I poured it for my dad, who loves Napa Cab, and he just was like, uh, like this isn't my style. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's light. It's not it's not light by any means in body weight, but I was just, for for if you compare it to a Napa Cab, it's like comparing skim milk to whole milk almost. Well, it doesn't have the heavy oak manipulation that we get in yeah, America. it doesn't. So the Italians don't always want to admit, but Cabernet grows great out there. So you start growing your Cabernet and your Sangiovese next to each other and blend them together. It's a perfect blend. And globally, those wines have taken off. Yeah. Now, initially, they were actually had to be labeled IGT, like a generic wine. They didn't ever had DOC or DOCG status, and now they're giving them DOCG status. Are they really? They are, because they've become so popular globally. First of all, money talks. Money always talks. And especially to that country. Do you know what the the Sasakaya is blend with? Because I know Tignanello's 80% Sangiovese with a blend of other stuff into it. I think is around that same area. I'm not sure. So, by the way, I got one of those Sasakaya's. I got. I, I have a few of the 2015 Wine Spectator one. We'll do that a decade from now on the podcast, or maybe we'll open up a couple over time. And I've been a real big fan. Uh, that one that I really enjoyed was Ornella's, um, which was what Cab Merlot, Sangiovese, Syrah, and then the other one, the Siguri, uh, the, I, La, the La Sigure, the uh, yeah. You know what I'm thinking? Yes, of. from Rocco de Frassinello. Was that who it was? Frassinello does the Sugeri. They do the Rocca de Rocca Frassinello. They do they do a couple different ones. That was the one where it was like the producer from France and Italy Correct. got together. Yeah. That was I mean, lo- those are amazing blends. Yes. I love those wines. That was a combination project with like Lafitte and Penerai. Yeah. And that's all in Tuscany, right? Yes. It's crazy. That's uh, They're awesome, awesome wines. But there's no regulations that say you have to be at least 50% Sangiovese. You have to be at least 50% international varietals. There's no law. I think you could be 100% Cabernet and still be called a Super Tuscan out there. It's it's a weird gray area that they still have, and they're kind of just letting people go with it because, once again, money talks. When when you have people like Lafitte and you have people like Penerai and you have like these big, huge Antonori. Antonori does Tiganello. 
These are is that who does that because I know Antonio is a big guy out there. Yeah. So these are huge names. I mean, like the little like the guy who makes Gaiole is going to be able to <laughs> lobby the government to get stuff changed, but the Marchese di Barolo can get the laws of Barolo changed because he's the Marchese di Barolo. Yeah. That guy, that guy's got on speed dial to the prime minister for the boom boom room. Yes, I guarantee. <laughs> Did not expect that out of your mouth right there. <laughs> it's Italy. <laughs> oh man, the prime minister. What was that prime minister's name? Uh, actually, it was uh, Berlusconi. <laughs> Berlusconi, and he used to have uh, bunga bunga parties. Bunga bunga. That's what. Not boom boom. Boom Boom is Atlanta. Bunga Bunga is Italy. <laughs> same thing, different country. <laughs> it was just a different term. Same thing, yeah. That guy was trying, that guy after he got out of jail was trying to run for president again or and whatever he, it is. And he almost won. He yeah. got like third place. That's crazy. I mean, the, the laws over there are nuts. Like, think about it. We have two parties. They have 20 plus parties. Yeah. It's hard to get them to, to agree on anything over there. Uh, I'm All right. So this, the Rubiolo is opening up way more than the Rufino is because I think I think that's one thing with old wines and I'm starting to learn a little more as I open old wines is they change but not as drastically as younger wines do and the Rubiolo is totally different from when we first opened it to right now it's fresher on the nose now than it was an hour ago it's more it's more uh, I still get that it's a, there's a kitchen spice like I'm telling you it's just it's it constantly is reminding my grandma's kitchen there's a but in this time instead of using sage and whatever she's using unique spices that kind of give like a, a pungent kick to your nose yeah, in see, a weird way see i'm still getting sage i'm getting thyme now t-h-y-m-e yeah i'm getting oh but i'm not getting like basil i'm not getting dill i'm not getting yeah i'm getting so, no oak characteristics on this often when i I'm trying to come up with a flavor puff. Like I know it's an herb. I will cross off the herbs that it's not. I'll say this is not rosemary. It doesn't have a pininess to it. It yeah. is not. There's no basil. pininess. It's not oregano. Like there's certain things I can say it's not. It's not, more not, leaf not. Uh, herbish versus um, uh, stick herbish. And like a rosemary is like a stick herb to me, and I'm not getting that at all. But it's still so fresh. It doesn't have that bitter astringent thing that turns people off about Chianti. Yeah, there's a floralness to it. It's subtle, but there's a floral characteristic in there. Like it's like almost as if a violet or a rose petal is kind of being thrown into the mix, which is really... there. I think you're nailing it with there's a freshness to it. I'm not good at picking out the freshness, but I know it's there. As an average person who knows, oh, I like these, the Rufino comes across... If I was just the average consumer, the Rufino comes off as old. Not bad old, just old like there's old characteristics to it like a brushiness a uh, a decaying potpourri like we were saying potpourri the Ru- the rubiolo is i was pepper was popping out because what i wanted to say was there's a fresh herb to it with a peppery kick but i didn't want to say pepper and sangiovese because i don't get pepperiness from the sangiovese but you yeah, now, I know you th- you know what i didn't get it before and just now it has that really almost like heavy cotarone pepper characteristic it's yeah it's it's what i i'm still picturing my grandma's big kettle pot with the tomatoes in there she throws in the bay leaf and the and the basil and stuff and then just douses it with pepper and salt across the top and as she did that that nose just kicked off right there like i imagine my grandma's pasta so for people that are wanting to get into Chianti's, I say do a tasting with a few of them. Have fun with it. Go through Chianti versus Chianti Classico and see the actual difference between them. 
when you go to Classico, it's a step up in quality. I mean, for me, I think the tiers are going to be Chianti, Chianti Classico. Then you're going to get the Grand Selezione. I know Reserva is going to fall in there. Some other stuff's going to fall in there. But if I just want to spend 10 bucks on a bottle, 15 bucks on a bottle, I go Chianti. If I want to spend 25 to 30, I'll go Classico. If I want to spend 45, 50 or so, I'll go Grand Selezione. Now, there's regular Chiantis that hit a high tier. Yeah. And there's also Chianti Classicos that hit a low tier. Yes. Like there's, there's stuff all in the middle. Yeah. But I think that's a good rule of thumb. Um, I'm, when I'm at a restaurant, I typically, if I'm going to order a bottle, I go Classico. It's usually universally friendly to Cabernet drinkers because it's got a little more richness to it. Think so? Than, than just ordinary Chianti. Keep in mind, these are both Classicos. True, you're right. We didn't exactly open up a regular Chianti. Which here. is often, nowadays, regular Chiantis are light, fresh, fruity. They're only aged less than a year. You're looking at eight months, maybe. If I mean, a lot of the Chiantis now are three months in oak. Six months in bottle, release so, to the public. So Chianti is Chianti, not Classico, is good for your. I'm just starting to drink wine because it's light. It's a little bit acidity. Now, if you were going to do it, have it with food. Like if you went to a basic restaurant and you were trying something on the menu, a good Chianti, not Classico, would be cool to pair with the food because it's light and easy. The tannins aren't going to come across hard. It's going to pair decently still with food. I think I, honestly, no more I drink this. I mean, Chianti is a good way to to start wine drinkers into wine drinking world, kind of. Like with a, food. With food. Because I think on its own, it turns Americans off because of the acid. Yes. If it by itself is not probably the right way to start. I think Pinot Noir can be by itself with the American palate if it's like a Russian River thing. If I introduce somebody said, I've never had a wine before, what would you start me with? And let's say we were focusing on Italy. When if we were eating... Chianti might be the right way to go. When someone says, I only have had white wines or I've only liked sweet wines, I want to start drinking reds, where do I start? I do not say Chianti or Classico. I say Pinot Noir. It's the exact opposite. Yeah, that bitterness will turn them away. It does. It's funny because you know what mine is is for people is Malbec. Because if you get the right Malbec, the fruitiness comes across as sweet, but, that, but it's not sweet. It's just the fruit changes your brain concept. Oh, it tastes strawberries and raspberries. Now, American... Actually, American... Uh, Russian River Pinot might be perfect because it has a cola flavor. But that's the problem you run into with Malbec is Malbec is a schizophrenic wine True. in America. You never know what the hell, what kind of personality you're going to get out of that bottle. You Sometimes you might buy a bottle of Malbec for $10 and it's a big oak bomb. You might go to the store the next day, buy a $10 Malbec and it's light and fruity and wimpy. True. You just don't really know. Yeah. That's what's hurting Malbec, I think, right now in America. Malbec sales are dipping because... There's, they're, they're changing too much to... to, to people do you think they're swinging from the American palette into what it should be? I think they need to come up with some different designations of where they're from. Instead of just saying Mendoza, I think you have to designate a little bit deeper into it based on altitude and where they come from because they're all over the board. I feel bad for people that say, oh, I love Malbec, but every time they go to the store, it's a different Malbec. It's true. San Juan, San Luca. If you say you like Napa Cab... Luca, yeah. I could give you a big one, a medium one, a light one. They're all going to They're all going to fall in the same. They're going to be Napa Cab. Yeah. I could literally go to the store right now buy three separate Malbecs from Mendoza that taste like three different grapes. True. That somebody is going to go, "I love this one, I hate this one." So, here's the downside is now you're also hitting Chianti on that. Chianti's, Chianti's going to be the same way. Chianti's getting better though cuz they're they're exporting higher quality Chiantis, but there are still 
light-bodied ones, medium-bodied ones, full-bodied ones. There's definitely different expressions of them. So the one thing I do like about the way the Italians run the law is it kind of prevents them from Americanizing their wine. They're not going to take a Chianti and go 100% brand new American or French oak on it. They say, here's the rules. You've got seven months of this, 24 months of this. you got to pick so many hectares. So that way, at least on a good side is, is that... You know, somebody can come in and have a Chianti and they know what they're going to get. They know they get that that light, acidic style of wine. But the one thing I think that is super important to for anybody to understand is a Chianti is a great food wine. Mm-hmm. And by itself, I think you have to really like Chianti to have it by itself, but it should definitely be drank with food. Chianti is not a cocktail. It's not. It's not a beginning wine. It's this is you open it up for food. It's not what you start with. This isn't champagne, even though we talked that we could do it. She could have champagne from start to end, but Chianti should be drank with food. I this is one of the few times in my life I'm drinking a Chianti without something in front of me to eat along with it some cheese, some meat, some soprasada. I've been really wanting a cheese. This is the first episode I've ever wanted a cheese plate or an antipasto in front of me. These wines would be completely different. They would actually taste completely different if we had meats and cheeses in front of us. You know what we should do one day is we're going to have somebody on who's a chef and be like, bring an antipasto place or a cheese plate. We're going to eat it at the same time. Totally. I mean, especially if we have like Claudio on, have him bring some bread or stuff in the restaurant. I mean, yeah. Certain people are known for what they make too. There's, there's chefs here locally that make their own cured meats. Yeah. Did by the way, did you notice? And it was just me a little bit with the Rubiolo, a little bready characteristic to it. Yes. Okay. Because I got a little hint of like a bready characteristic to this. It blew off instantly, but it was in the front. That's yeah. When I first poured it, and that's why I said it had that little f- I, funk in the beginning. I had like a baguette, like a fresh baguette in my mind for just a second. not like overpowering like I would a certain champagne, but like I just in my mind I was like, it feels like I just had like a like I can smell baguettes being made two rooms over. Actually, it does, and I know you said, I was thinking when you said bready, I was thinking brett, but no, it's bread as bread, in uh, bread. Not brett. Yeah, no, it does. It has a, a slightly I'm not noticing fresh, a fresh, fresh baked bread characteristic. Yeah. Yes. But did you get any brett with a T in this one on this? It had a little funk when I first opened it. Like like when it first went in my glass, when you first poured it, it there was a little funk. Yeah, a little bit. But I think it's worth one of those. Just the way the grape is. It happens naturally with a lot of Italian wines. You see it with a lot with Chiantis. I've opened a lot of Chiantis that have a little touch of Brett. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed is um, the only other Sangiovese that I've ever liked outside of Italy was from uh, Leonetti in Washington. I think it's the only guys who come close to it. I think Sangiovese found its home. Sangiovese is so good in Italy. That's the predominant place it should be. I'm sure someday some people will come along and add something to their menu and bring something about that. You and I have had one. Uh, Dustin brought the Sangiovese from Santa Maria or Paso Robles, whatever, and it was 15.5 alcohol, and you're like, woo, that's a lot. It wasn't that was bad, but it doesn't taste like the Sangiovese you get from Italy. Once you add a lot of oak, you add a lot of alcohol to this, it ruins the intricacies of the wine. And then you're just tasting... The oak and cooking. Now I have high acid and high alcohol and high oak. It's almost too much. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to it. I think think this is fantastic. I've been real happy with this. So, Yeah, it's a really cool perspective of two different vintage of Chianti Classico. Um, Yeah, the 
No, 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 no. That one. Right, you pour this in that one. Yeah. Oh, you've got some in that one. Yeah, this. totally. Sorry. Okay. We're, we're, we're the, the way our glasses are set up, we're trying to make sure we pour. We're not trying to make blends here. Although we could, you know, at some point, sometime, we'll do this. This will be a random episode. We should get a very specific vineyard, or you know, winemaker, Cab Merlot, Malbec, Petiva, whatever. They all make it, and we should just make a blend on the uh, on the podcast. See what happens. You did it, episode one. Oh, I did. I put Zima and Rosé together. You did. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. What a way to start off yeah. the, our first episode. So, all right, final thoughts. Fine. Where are we at with these? Because I'll, I'll start with this one. If I was a, I think I kind of touched on it earlier, uh, the Rufino is clearly old, but in a nice, like a, a wine perspective, this is cool. It made it for what's being told was a bad year. I think it did well. The fruit's definitely off a bit and the old characteristics of wines kind of popped out. A little bit of funkiness. Um, the fruit's definitely tailed back, but there's still a liveliness to the acidity that I think that this would pair well with a rustic style food. Not like a, like a new modern age, you know, kind of a dish but like maybe like some stew like a stew i think would go great with this kind of a wine and then when i worked to the rubiolo i think you nailed it like it's fresh the fruit's still there there's still that old chianti characteristics you can definitely pinpoint that this is a sangiovese based wine the acidity's high the tannin is nice because you get a little bit of the tannin and then it fades off real quick with a good finish to it and i'll i'll add a little something to the chianti retro or perspective is that these are wines that don't be afraid to age them for a couple of years. Cause they're going to hold up really well. Often we have the debate constantly. Will this age? Will this hold up? I don't think you will ever have a problem with any Chianti holding up because of that acid. So even if you happen to buy a case of something and it's five years later, you don't have to be worried. It's just going to get, it's just going to, it's going to age gracefully. It's not going to fall off the cliff really fast. I think if you don't open those bottles for six, seven, eight years, it's okay. Yeah, I think this uh, this Rufino kind of shows it. We're looking at a 2002 Classico, and it's still holding on. You and know? it's not an expensive iteration of Chianti Classico. This isn't a $300 bottle. I think current vintages are only about 25 bucks of this. And truth be told, it's not like it's a drastic swing from the other one, this Rubiolo. You know, you can have a Napa Cab from 2000 and let's say 15 now, and you drink a 2010, and it's a huge drastic difference. The Rufino and the Rubiolo for being, what is it, nine years apart? It's definitely different, but it's not drastic. It's subtle. There's like the oldness to the Rufino and the freshness to the Rubiolo, but there's still this, the core characteristics, I think, of the Sangiovese are still there. So I agree. It was an awesome show. I love this, man. I, I can't wait to do more Italian wines, which we'll be doing a lot of. <laughs> well, you can only do so much with Cabernet Syrah and stuff in France, whereas we could do a thousand episodes and never repeat a varietal out of Italy. It's pretty yeah. amazing. And, or talk about the same town and what to do. Dude, I have a million things in my head I want to talk about Italy with that we'll get to one point. Yeah, I wanted to talk about other regions. I'm like, let's keep this in, in touch. Keep it in check. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We love you guys. Appreciate it. Cheers. Take care.